So Russ, we've been off for a week, mm. and um, I knew what recordings we were going to listen to you know, two weeks ago. So I figured, okay, I'll have like I'll listen to them all, and I'll have a week off. But wouldn't you know it? I just finished listening to the last of the six recordings a few hours ago. <laughs> I'm telling you, if if we were to if we did this podcast once a year and we had six recordings to listen to, I'd finish them like next year, like right before the podcast somehow. I don't know why that happens. I don't know. It's something about life. You know, you always sort mm -hmm. of automatically measure things out when you know you have extra time. And then right. you never, <laughs> you never really account for getting things done early. And then you always seem to be right up to the, at the edge. Yeah. So did you uh, have an enjoyable week off or what? It was good. We should do this more often, <laughs> actually, because, uh, yeah, we've yeah. been uh, going uh, pretty hard. 94 episodes. It's true, straight. but I, I got to tell you, in the week off, I feel like uh, instead of doing something I like to do, I had to do a lot of work about in something I don't like to do. So I right. think I'd rather do this. Yeah. Well, it did give me a chance mm -hmm. to uh, spend some more time looking at new releases. That's and, true. Uh, I did that too. Build up the list of, you know, new things to come up. And most importantly, the most enjoyable musical thing right. out of taking a week off is I actually got to go back and listen to some of my normal music collection. Oh, yeah, Just leisurely. Yeah. Uh, because we spend so much time listening to new music. That, yeah, the uh, way we listen to music isn't normal because I, you I know, know. I'm not really, it's funny because you hear differently when you're not like, you don't have like a pen in your hand, you know, or right. something like that. Or the laptop on your, your table, lap table here or whatever. Right trying to yeah. put those sounds into words, but that's what we do here at Adult Music. And we're back after, well, we, we went since September 2021 with no break. Yeah. We just took our week off, and now we're on episode 121 mm. of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, bringing you the best new releases in classical and jazz from mm -hmm. our very subjective perspective, that is. Right. Very subjective. and Yeah. But that's the way, that's the way to go, you know? Yeah. You got to listen for yourself and see what you what you think. Well, as always, we're going to have six new recordings for you this week. And all the music that we're going to talk about, you can find links to in the episode description. There's Spotify, there's Apple Music. And then at the top, there's all of the music in one place in a playlist on Deezer, hmm. our favorite CD quality streaming platform. <laughs> well, 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 your favorite one. Yeah, I guess my it's my favorite, favorite one too because I don't have another one. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm looking now. Let's just say that uh, I'm still mad about the missing tracks thing. I should really check and see if they've ever restored those tracks. Although yeah, this week I got out. lucky. They had all the tracks. We'll see. We're expecting the arrival of uh, Kobas to Japan later in the year. So maybe yeah. we'll uh, see what they have to offer as well. Uh, anyway, if you don't see the full description, the recording list or links or the links aren't active wherever you listen to us, you can always come over to our host site as well. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow over there for this and all previous episodes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. And that's another way we can get new listeners. Also, come over and follow us on our Facebook page. Get extra info. Lots of new releases throughout the week. Since we had a week off, I had a whole bunch of new uh, releases that just came out up there. If you want to check out things that may or may not make it into one of our podcasts, and you can leave a message or comment there as well. If you'd like to contact us directly with any comments, questions, or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I also want to give a couple 
thanks to some very nice mm. musicians we oh, yeah. encountered. First of all, John Alabuni and his great recording, You Are Not Alone, and he sent us a couple of copies of this all the way to Japan here. It's on Skydeck Records, really great original music that we talked about a few weeks ago. So if you haven't heard this yet, you want to definitely listen to this. I think this is uh, going to be one of our favorite recordings this year so far. Yeah, I think so too. Probably show yeah. up in the best of list. And then just yesterday, Jason Kaiser's Shaw's Groove. It's a really great recording guitarist, Jason Kaiser. This is on uh, OA2 Records as part of Origin. And very interesting. Uh, two guitar, trumpet, Barry Sachs arrangements of Woody Shaw, the great trumpeter's music. This was really an interesting recording we liked. And Jason sent us uh, some signed copies. So I'll be giving that to you during the week, Mike. Yeah, look forward to that. Yeah. And uh, so thanks to these great musicians. If you haven't checked out these recordings, they're two of our really favorite ones we've heard this year so far. And I just want to say, you know, all the musicians that we've met from this uh, Bay Area music scene, it would be Jason Kaiser, Mimi Fox, and Brian Ho. They're all super nice, enthusiastic, really friendly people. They've got a really nice music vibe going on there. And, um, you know, all the music is really cool, too. So it's really uh, been one of the nice things about this podcast is meeting people all around the world. And, uh, you know, we just happen to meet some really nice people all from one music scene that know each other, too. So, yeah, you get some good vibes from that. But I'm just looking up. Uh, we did a recording a few weeks past on the Beast label called Seicento Stravagante for Cornetto and Keyboard. Right. And remember, there were two tracks missing on Deezer. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to... Robert Von Barr at Beast had uh, responded to me. He's the head of the uh, label. And he was looking to really get at them. He wasn't happy yeah. about this situation at all. And I'm looking at the uh, Deezer listing, and now they've got all 16 tracks. How about that? Oh, I guess amazing. he gave them hell. Yeah, Way to go, Robert. <laughs> yeah. You're now my, now my hero. I want you to know, Robert Von Barr, if you're listening <laughs> to this podcast, I just ordered nine Beast albums. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were on sale and there was uh there were a lot of them that came out this year that i really wanted to hear they're all on sacd you're just great we love yeah. you here at uh adult music so there you go and i did find uh the arnold Bornkamp, the barry sax classical mm. recording from last time that was all messed up on deezer i was able to find all the tracks uh the listing on deezer still isn't correct but it's correct on our playlist so i did write to that label too but they didn't respond so i, okay. I don't know i think they might uh, not be yeah have have anybody in house there or something it looks sounds like a little a smaller label it's really nice when um, mm. people send us these uh, copies because i figured out of the more than 700 cds we've discussed if we had purchased all of those that would be uh, f- more than 14,000 us dollars so yeah far. we haven't made that much back from the podcast so no actually but i think between my uh my novel extreme music please read it listeners it's available at amazon.com and uh this podcast i still don't think i've made a hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're serving a greater purpose. So. Right, I know. Yeah, it's just there waiting, come back waiting to for some to wake some kid up at the next generation or That's something. Right. You know, they'll say, "Wow, what a great time that was." Yeah, who knew this was going on? And uh, well, before we get into uh, this week's content, one more mention, and that's to our friends over at the Same Difference. Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, a podcast we recommend you also check out because we're always talking about uh, the new 
new jazz, new classical, and sometimes in these recordings we're going to come across some standard tunes. There'll be a few tonight, as usual, but uh, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra look exclusively at standards, and they pick one for each episode. That comes out twice a month, and they're going to talk about the history of the standard, play little versions, snippets of each version, and talk about what they like and don't like. So, if, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to get some background information and learn more about jazz standards, I recommend you check out their podcast. There'll be a link for it in the description as well. All right. So are we ready to go into the uh, the musical part of this uh, episode? I think uh, tonight we're going to have a, some interesting combinations, sort of like, yeah. you know, uh, transcontinental, transnational kind of themes going yeah. on in here. So should we just call the episode trans? It'll, I bet it'll get us a lot of hits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They might be disappointed with the content, though. Transmusical, we'll, we'll maybe. Do, we'll do yeah. anything for attention. <laughs> Transmusical would be good. Anyway, this uh, first one you've got uh, kind of surprised me because... Uh, yeah, me yeah, too. It's pretty interesting. When I saw it and then I heard it and I was really delighted by it. Okay, it's called... Um, this is an album on the Atma Classique label and it's called Calcutta 1789 à la croisée de l'Europe. Et de Londe. Oh, I like the way you say that. Yeah, me too. All the ladies do too. <laughs> <laughs> At the crossroads of Europe and India is what that means. Calcutta, hmm. 1789. Now, uh, this is a little bit of a musical history I didn't know anything about. So I was educated in the last two weeks. And I'm always happy to do that. I love being educated. It makes me feel young like I still don't know things. Because uh, you don't ever want to... Know everything. It's do better you? than just being old and not knowing things. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and well, the thing is, I have. Um, you see, Russ has um, video on me now, so he can see my room here, and I've got like bookshelves, like just crammed with books. And um, I'm sort of of the uh, people ask me, "Oh, you're going to read all his books?" Probably not. But um, I'm of the Umberto Eco school, where. Um, Having a lot of books that you haven't read is a constant reminder of things you don't know. So, right. <laughs> and that's a good place to be. Right? It kind of makes you a little humble. And I do intend to read them all, but I probably won't live long enough. And besides, more <laughs> books keep coming up. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, let me, this is the ensemble that's on this um, recording is uh, called Noturna. The director is Christopher Palameta, who also plays the oboe. And uh, I'll, I'll name the whole ensemble here. So they're a pretty interesting lot. Uh, Mika Putterman is on the traverso, which is kind of like a, you've seen those wooden recorders, right? And the mm. traverso is played like a flute. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of, you hold it. Oh, traverse, left, Except yeah. that it's made of wood. Oliver Brault on the violin. Dorian Bandy on violin and viola. Uh, Susie Knapper on cello. Bryce Sai on harpsichord. And featuring Uwe Neumann on sitar. And uh, Sean Matavetsky on the tabla. Wow, you, you never really hear Western mus- musicians on those instruments. You know, they're kind of right. usually Indians playing them. Well, that's what I heard right away when this started. I heard harpsichord, and then I said, wait, that's tabla and sitar. I and, know, uh, it's really weird, but it works right really well for a change. Arrangements, by the way, are by Noturna, and they are excellent. Also, I should mention the pitch on this uh, album, A equals 415 hertz. That's very Ooh. low. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Baroque era pitch. We usually get A equals 440 today uh, if you want to uh, compare. So it's a much brighter sound. This one isn't. 
Now, I really needed the booklet notes for this. It wasn't out on us. It still isn't out on a CD. It's coming out on July 7th, but it's mm. it's available as a download or as a streaming, and that's how we heard it. And thankfully, the booklet notes are on uh, online because I really needed them for this. I didn't know what was going on otherwise, although it's a beautiful album anyway. Okay, well, the theme of the album is uh, Calcutta in India as a cultural crossroads. Calcutta's in Bengal. It's now called um, Kolkata. They've changed the name to, I guess, be closer to, uh, I guess, the Indian language that's spoken there or something. Anyway, it's in Bengal. It was founded as a trading post by members of the British East India Company in 1609. So I guess it just wasn't a really a place before that. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I have to look into that. Anyway, here's what happened. The uh, affluent merchants who traded there would travel with lavish entourages that invariably included privately hired musicians. Eh, not a bad gig, huh? You want to yeah. come to India and entertain me? <laughs> yeah, sure. The voyages must have been rough back then, though. Yeah, I don't think there's much to... Well, if, you, if you're able to buy anything, you, don't, you could probably sell it back in Britain for a much higher, <laughs> yeah. higher price. According to various sources, there was a lively and dynamic European musical presence in India at the end of the 18th century. I had no idea about this. Uh, the British colony of Calcutta had grown to a community of nearly 4,000 expatriates by 1780. I think it's that word expatriate, I mean, hmm. we're kind of expatriates. We just kind of came here and live here and you know, yeah. work here. I don't know. Uh, here in Japan, I mean. Uh, making it possible for musicians like William Hamilton Bird, who, whose music we're going to hear on this album, to organize public subscription concerts and even large-scale oratorio productions, which we're not going to hear on this album. Uh, fashionable composers of the time like Carl Friedrich Abel, or Abel and Johann Christian Bach, one of the Bach sons, were on the programs. But, um, interestingly enough, um, one peculiarity is the prominence given to ancient masters. Ancient with quotation marks. Uh, but I should mention, I'm reading this from the booklet notes, such as Purcell and Handel. Now, this, hmm. this wasn't done at the time. There wasn't this idea of a uh, repertoire or of uh, you know, the, the great you know, composers that we have today. The past was the past. Nobody listened to it. You, you always needed new music. And this is probably why we have so much uh, music from the past that has now piled up. The whole idea of a repertoire came about with uh, Felix Mendelssohn in the mid-19th century. And it seems to have gotten narrower and narrower, narrower as the uh, 20th century went on. And then in the 1980s, it started opening up a bit again due to a lot of scholarship and uh, the like. The, the reason why Purcell and Handel were um, played there was um, it was believed that their music contained quote colorful expressions of imperial values oh, oh imperial values I want to it sounds like an hmm. oxymoron today but it yeah. had a meaning to it subliminal tax messages or something yeah maybe in the collective mind of colonial Anglo-Indian high society which is what this would have been Right, so this is the music that they would have listened to. And there are a lot of really interesting stories about this. And the first track is uh, by an anonymous composer. And the track is called uh, Sakia or Sakia. I don't know where the accent goes or if there even is one. But it's a Hindustani air for mixed ensemble. And it's a transcription of a Hindustani melody, which begins with the verse Sakia, cupbearer. Sakia is a cupbearer. It is the season of spring. And it was transcribed by... Margaret Falk, and structured almost as an 18th century jam session. Uh, the melodies first performed on the harpsichord here, then on the tabla and sitar. So this album really gives you what you're mm -hmm. gonna have like throughout this album. It's really interesting. 
And then European instruments join in one by one, the flute, oboe, violin, and then cello. And the piece culminates in a full tutti section before reverting to its original configuration as a piece for solo keyboard. The tune is a recta, which is a form particularly admired by and comprehensible to Europeans, thanks to its recognizable ABA structure. And the ensemble believe it wonderfully captures the interplay and aesthetic appreciation of two equally sophisticated musical traditions. Yes, Indian tradition was and still is highly, highly sophisticated and is very different than the Western music mm. tradition with its rhythms and its sort of um, the way. I, I The only thing I really know much about it is really rags, like the right. the high-level classical music and just how they kind of, you know, the, the structure of them, which is still very heavily um, based on improvisation. The ensemble has done its best to vary their instrumentation here. The harpsichord sound that begins with is pretty and light. It's really nice, a nice chimey sound, very gentle and stately, very European. Now, it sounds, the melody sounds European. It's an Indian melody, but I think they've taken away some of its like Indian spice. I mean, you would have to on a harpsichord, which is a little more rigid mm. in its tonality. You can't really bend the strings, get quarter tones and, you know, the, these different sorts of scales that um, were available in India at the time. And still are. Uh, suddenly, at a minute and seven seconds in, the sitar and tabla come in, and we get that Indian flavor. Although the rhythm is pretty metrical, it does sound. Mm. It doesn't sound like it's really going off in the the Indian manner too much. And it's very European for this to be a full-on Indian rendition of the piece. That's because the winds, I guess, come in over the tabla to play the melody again, and they have to be able to play it. So this has been kind of squeezed sort of into a more Western-sounding uh, scale. Uh, we get a sense of the Indianness of the theme from the sitar, but it's played very clearly in a European sense, uh, without much Indian spice added. So you're not getting in those bend, bended notes too much. There, there's a little bit of that. Mm. We're only suggestions of them. It's it's a pretty airy theme, very melodic. Uh, the pacing and feel is very sunny and pleasant, and so is the whole album, by the way. Sunny and pleasant is a really good yeah. set of adjectives to describe this record. This would be a great start to anyone's day. You might want to program this into your... Uh, you're streaming and uh, wake up to it. I think it'll put you in the right place uh, at the beginning of the day. And then you get on the highway, going to work, and it's all downhill from there. But uh, at least you'll start the right way. <laughs> anyway, strings come in in the third minute, repeat the theme, playing along with the sitar. And there's a great tabla solo in the fifth minute as the sitar repeats the theme. And then the whole ensemble comes in with the theme, and the solo harpsichord, as we mentioned, ends the piece. It's really pretty. You should uh, give this a listen. And the uh, sitar and um, tabla don't sound intrusive among the Western instruments at all. They actually blend really well. I was actually kind of dreading that because I was thinking of past, <laughs> like, say, jazz collaborations with Indian artists. Right. And they, they never work. Like, uh, I remember, like, Kenny G with a, a sitar player. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, a very ill-advised, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sort of recording there but uh, no this this works exceptionally well whatever they did uh, they, they made it it's really beautiful anyway uh, tracks two and three Johann Christian Bach were squarely in uh, Europe again or like um, the European part of this um, Indian concert this whole uh, program plays out like an evening of music making you know you can imagine at someone's house they're all chamber works this is a quintet in F major, opus 22, number two, for oboe, violin, viola, cello, and obbligato harpsichord. It's got two movements. Uh, the first is allegro comodo. It's got an oboe theme over the uh, continuo, 
Johann Christian's theme is neatly conceived and chirpy, so it's kind of a nice follow-up to the, uh, the Indian piece we heard first. The strings take it next, sounding a bit in the background. Uh, the wind's always up front. The strings do sound a bit recessed on the album. They don't really come out, but I rather like their sound. They're, they're nice and smooth. There's no vibrato on them. Let me see here. The winds are always up front on this album too. And the winds have a satisfying um, sound to them. They kind of head towards the shrill side without really getting there. They're never unpleasant to listen to, but they do kind of get kind of on the loud side. At 114, the harpsichord gets an impressive solo with the wind playing accompaniment over it. And I appreciated the fact that the harpsichord, though soloing, remains quiet as it would be at a live performance. It does kind of have its natural sound, like it's a little far mm. away here. At around 155, the opening material repeats, and we're off into a rushing development section. The opening repeats lightly and charmingly. And it's a pleasant, heart-lifting uh, movement. Then we get the second movement, Tempo di Minuetto. This comes across as a typically square-rhythmed minuet, suitable for a stylized dance. Uh, there's a pleasing false cadence around 30 seconds, which we hear again at 214 in the repeat of the opening material. It's welcome to hear that uh, false cadence in an otherwise straightforwardly written menuet. The trio section starts at 225 and has the chiming harpsichord with a pleading violin taking up the theme after the harpsichord, very light, as befits a trio. I love the chiming tone of the harpsichord on this recording, and it's, it's very pretty, and it's got a satisfying final cadence too. We hear Johann Christian Bach again in track four, quintet in D major, Opus 22, number one, for Traverso. That's the flute. Oboe, violin, cello, and obligato harpsichord. This is only the second movement. We hear the andantino. Um, the Traverso plays in a high range over pizzicato, cello, and harpsichord. And it borders on shrillness up there. When the Traverso repeats, the oboe comes in with a counter melody, which is very pretty. At the minute seven second mark, we go into a middle section led by a theme on the oboe. The material is paced beautifully so that one finds oneself sighing along as the themes unfold. It's really beautiful playing and be a beautiful composition too. At 2.36, a minor key theme is heard in the solo cello, which is not front and center on the recording, but was accurate for the time. It probably would have sounded like this then. The orchestration keeps the ear moving to all of the individual instruments in the ensemble, the material being passed to all of them, and the opening repeats at the end in the traverso the flute. Tracks five through eight, George Friedrich Handel, quartet in G major, my song shall be away for oboe, two violins, and bass. Now there's a nice, the first movement, Largo and Staccato, has a lovely oboe sound, but the recording has changed. It sounds a bit further away, and there's a lot of room reverb on it. Um, it still comes up well on the recording, the music, but I liked the drier acoustic better. I don't know what happened here. Um, I guess the engineer wanted the oboe to fully bloom in the room, um, which it does, but I just kind of feel like there's too much room sound now. Anyway, this goes on through all the movements. Allegro, this comes on like a continuation of the opening introductory material. It's busy, and the oboe especially is busy. And uh, Christopher Palameta, the um, oboist and director, plays well, but I feel like the business of the instrument would have come across more satisfyingly in the drier acoustic. I'm going to keep complaining about this, really. He's perfectly audible, though. The rhythm is kept tight and lively throughout. Good enthusiasm from the ensemble, and it actually sounds like there's an odd fade on the last chord, uh, something having to do with the recording, not the uh, playing. I don't think they faded it. 
Third movement, Adagio, is a slower movement, introductory in nature, with the oboe lyrically spinning out its melody, and that leads to the fourth movement, Allegro. Repeated notes on the harpsichord and strings start this fugal theme, but it doesn't stay a fugue for long. The oboe is quickly part of the texture, and the ear jumps from the oboe to strings to follow along, a pleasing effect. Again, the rhythm is lively, making the opening repeated notes of the theme feel like a springboard that lifts the preceding melody high into the air. There's a lot of bloom on the orchestration at the end of the movement, uh, but the spacious reverb, for me anyway, detracts from it a bit. It's still a good, I don't want to complain about the recording, it sounds good, but I was more satisfied with the first four tracks and then these came on and it was a little different. I just, I just didn't like the change. Anyway, the spacious reverb continues in the next Henry Purcell piece, If Love's a Sweet Passion, which is a song from the Fairy Queen. This features the oboe again. It's originally a song, but the melody is passed from section to section in this arrangement. Uh, the piece is brief at under two minutes. When I say section to section, I mean like first to um, say the strings, then to the winds, mm. things like that. It kind of, instead of being sung by like a single person. It's a brief piece at under two minutes. The acoustic is spacious again. Um, maybe too much so, but it doesn't affect the detail in this piece as much as in the previous handle, Fast Movements. Track 10, Henry Purcell, Fairest Isle, King Arthur from King Arthur, is a song arrangement. This is a pretty famous song, actually. The Traverso has much of the opening theme here, but Mika Putterman is blended with the ensemble very well. Uh, the piece is played with a fluttering rhythm like a handkerchief wafting on a breeze. It's really pretty. Track 11, Carl Friedrich Abel, uh, quartet in B flat major, opus 12, number five for oboe, violin, viola, and bass. We are back to the drier acoustic here. So the uh, recording is sounding to my satisfaction once again here. The first movement this is a two movement work. The first movement is un poco allegro, and there's a drier acoustic here for the strings and harpsichord continuo. The recording is much more clear now and beautiful as in the opening tracks. We hear the oboe again playing thematic material, conversing with the strings. The piece is taken at a quick tempo, but it's lively at this tempo, and that makes it appealing and sort of heart-lifting. A lot of this music on this, the way it's played, the way it's phrased, really lifts the heart. It sounds mm. just really good. It gave me this nice light feeling throughout the entire album. I really enjoyed this a lot. The tempo uh, gives the rhythm some extra lift, and I like the uh, combined string sound here. It's vibratoless, and one can hear the individual strands even when they're playing in parallel. Uh, the light emotion and occasional conversational quality of the thematic writing are both captured well by the ensemble. And the second and final movement, Rondo, starts with less energy than the first movement. The ensemble takes this at a slower, more deliberate tempo, as if it's a courtly dance melody, but they shape the lines appealingly. There's a satisfying dip to the downbeats. The contrast between the sweet-toned oboe and the smooth vibrato-less strings brings a lot of appeal. The oboe gets the solo material well recorded here, and Christopher Palametta on the oboe draws some appealing phrasing out of the melody. There's an appealing sudden turn to the minor key in the trio section, completely played by the strings. The rondo theme repeats, and the return of the oboe plays the theme. All right, now track 13, we're up to William Hamilton Bird's Oriental Miscellany. And uh, this is from uh, 1789. Number 15, Recta, which is a type of Indian song. Mera Pera Abla Re. I didn't say that right. I have no idea what that sounds like, but 
Indie listeners, apologies. You could write to me and complain if you like. <laughs> For Mixed Ensemble. Okay, I have to explain what this is a little bit, even though it's very easy on the ear. So Hindustani airs were very popular, along with the uh, European music from back home for these, um, what would you call them? <laughs> these settlers, let's say, these colonial people. This is really one of the first forays of Western classical music into a crossover hmm. world music genre. And it's something that would um, mark classical music as it went on into the 19th century, where people were kind of listening to other cultures and trying to interpret it in a Western way. We hear that like in Debussy and his like uh, gamelan type um, right. compositions and things like that. Although they sound nothing like a gamelan, but it's a Western sort of idea of that. Anyway, this was happening way back in 1789. And of course we had like these uh, ala turca movements in Mozart, right. which were kind of imitating like the uh, Turkish army, like instruments and things like that of the time. Okay, there's always been a fascination for the exotic in European art, and many of the merchants' wives, who were often amateur keyboardists, transcribed for the harpsichord the Hindustani airs they heard during these live nauch performances, uh, which were soirees that included uh, music making and katha choreography by professional Mughal court musicians and dancing girls. Two of these women were Sophia Plowden, stationed in Lucknow, and her friend Margaret Falk, who we mentioned earlier, based in Benares. Both Plowden and Falk transcribed Bengali and Rajasthani songs they heard with the aid of the harpsichord, sitting with Indian musicians such as the Kashmirian courtesan Kanum Yan and her entourage in 1788. Plowden's work set the stage for William Hamilton Byrd's Oriental Miscellany, a collection consisting mainly of 30 Hindustani airs transcribed for the harpsichord and published in Calcutta in 1789. These short salon pieces are based on original Indian melodies that were transcribed into European notation and then harmonized in arrangements for solo keyboard. Hmm. So that means they were changed, all right? So they don't, I guess the, um, the original melody is discernible, but it's in a Western sort of key sort of, you know, yeah. a set of Western tones, let's say. We know that Europeans found Indian music to be fascinating, yet perplexing, and it presented difficulties of documentation and analysis. Indian music incorporated almost imperceptible quarter tones to the European ear anyway, right. and was often either unmetered or rhythmically complex, and featured frequent and, quotation marks, wild modulations. It was neither constructed on triad-based tonal harmony, nor written in staff notation. Hmm. And it was still essentially oral in transmission and extemporized in performance. So oral, A-U-R-A-L, okay? So you would hear it and you'd imitate and you'd play. The resulting transcriptions are therefore quintessentially European, where the transcribers did their best with the means available to document elusive sounds that would not readily conform to existing Western paradigms. All right, we're a little past that now, but this is 1789. These are the first forays into starting to uh, understand and enjoy uh, music of foreign lands. Anyway, this piece uh, opens with a more Indian-flavored rhythm and modal melody, which is unusual in Western music at this time. They really like to stick to those major and minor scales. Uh, for me, it comes across as more Middle Eastern due to the modes. There are tablas accompanying, but they're very discreet here, accenting only the main beats with its lowest frequency note, that middle thump that it does. The entire ensemble seems to be involved in this piece, and the melodies change often. 
Uh, the shape again seems to be ABA with the opening theme for full ensemble returning at around 245. The sweetness of tone and the Baroque palette of techniques fall lightly on the ear and make this faintly exotic and appealing. It's really on the first listen, you'll love this. Tracks 14 through 16 are Handel again, excerpts from his songs, selected from his oratorios for the harpsichord, voice, hautbois, or the oboe, or German flute. The first song is A Perque Justo Cell, uh, sung by Rodolinda. It's from the opera Rodolinda. The opening is more recitativo-like in its lightness, and the theme is traded again, upping the appeal where words are missing. When I say traded, I mean traded between the instruments. The theme is touching and draws sympathy for the character. I like the light timbres and arrangements used on this album, and they make the music fall that much more sympathetically on the ear. Boy, I'm just going to say this for every track. I really did enjoy the, the whole sound palette of this album. Uh, the work remains at this slow, sympathetic tempo. Track 15 is called Will the Sun Forget to Streak from Solomon. It's more noble and sort of manly with stronger, thicker harmony. Uh, the oboe plays the theme and the traverso takes over for the entire middle section. Then we get a, a sort of melodic profile that we hear a lot in Handel in Falsa Imagine, which is from, the, uh, from Ottone. I'm not really sure if it's an opera or an oratorio. But it's got some appealing, wondering pauses to the melody. The three arias on this album are well chosen for their variety of profile, the outer ones having more of a feminine feel to them, the middle one more masculine. It's lightly scored, and the oboe takes the lead in this track 16. Track 17, we hear William Hamilton Bird again, Oriental Miscellany number 13. It's a terana uh, called Dandara Vake. Again, <laughs> Indians, Indian people, forgive me for my mispronunciation. Uh, this is for harpsichord and sitar only. Wow. And mm. interestingly enough, there the sitar doesn't have to sound like the harpsichord, but it can sound like one and does a little bit in this track. The harpsichord is distantly recorded and blends heavily into the room acoustic. You can make out what it's playing, but the harmony tends to cloud in the room ambience. Uh, the sitar is also distant and blends with the harpsichord sound to such a degree that you often don't notice it's there. It's only the plucking quality of the attack that makes you realize it's playing. It's very mm. quietly played here and played more in the style of a Western instrument. The melody is very pretty and one can understand how the Europeans present in India would have taken to it. I want to say, I think the, um, the acoustic is so distant on this track because the engineer wanted the uh, sitar and harpsichord to be almost indiscernible uh, from each other, like one peeking out of the texture and then right. going back into it. And if he had recorded a little more closely, they would have um, there would have been more contrast between the two. So that's what I'm guessing for that. Anyway, we end with a brief uh, Henry Purcell track, uh, Rondeau from the Indian Queen. Uh, it sways and has a tabla accompaniment, which is very discreet again. The Baroque quality of the work comes through most strongly and the tabla comes across as a Renaissance-era percussion-like ensemble, if you know what those sound like, due to uh, the discreet way in which it's played, though its timbre gives it away as a tabla. Towards the end, it steps into the forefront a bit more with more complex rhythms, and for the last stretch of melody, it accompanies the quietly played sitar to end the album on completely Indian timbres. All right, so that's this album, and I want to highly recommend it. It's really a unique listen and very beautiful, too. 
first, there's a beautiful, spacious quality to the recording. For most of the tracks, sometimes it's a little too spacious, like on tracks uh, 5 through 10. But don't worry about that. We're able to hear to the back of what is usually opaque scoring for a Baroque ensemble. Uh, the entire CD comes across as elegant in overall sound, with even the Indian in- instruments r- registering lightly and charmingly on the ear. Part of this is the music itself. Uh, the music is gentle for the most part, and the album gave me a really lighthearted feel. It really lifted my spirits gently. It's ideal morning listening, as it's light and spacious and lifts the spirits and just gives you what you want to feel when you wake up out of bed. I think the ensemble could have gone all out and had a singer for the songs on the album in order to recreate an evening of 1789 European music making in India more completely. Surely they were singers. Um, But I personally like it like this. I'm glad there aren't any singers on the album. There's an odd change of sound quality, as I said, in tracks 5 through 10, where the acoustic becomes more reverberant, but it's not enough to turn me off the album. Again, ideal morning listening. I loved this. I'd like to get it on a CD. (laughs) I'll have to look for it. I think it's coming out on July 7th, so I'll be checking for it. It's mostly Baroque music, wonderfully played. I really enjoyed the oboe tone and the kind of leading presence it had in these pieces. And the pieces that incorporate the tabla and sitar are just really fun. It's Mm. just an earlier era of what we now call world music that we kind of don't uh, know much about or, you know, we don't think about it uh, now historically. But... It's very interesting, and as Mike has explained, you know some of the information from the album notes. Definitely, you can get these album notes from the website, and yeah, I think you get a lot more out helpful. of it. Get yeah. a full historical perspective of what was going on between England and India musically at this time. And yeah, I'd like to uh, hear some more of what happened uh, in those collaborations. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I should mention, this is basically a Baroque album, and it's mostly Western Baroque music. They're just a little... Uh, touches of uh, the Indian in there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. very uh, nice touches. Creative, yeah, nice touches. And it gives us a little, uh, it's like we take a little trip in our mind, you yeah. know, back to that time. All right, our next album is uh, an album of César Franck chamber music. We get vi- the violin sonata, the omnipresent violin sonata, mm. I should mention. We hear his piano trio number one and piano quintet. And uh, we also get a an extra piece by um, Louis Vierne, his piano quintet. This is by Trio Wanderer, um, who we like a lot generally yeah. on this podcast. I remember uh, listening to there. We didn't do this on the podcast because it was a little before that, but he, they did a Schumann right. complete yeah. um, chamber music album that was really great just a few years ago. Trio Wanderer consists of Vincent Koch on the piano, Jean-Marc Philippe Vajabedian on the violin, Raphael Pidou on the cello, and then we have, um, for the filling out the ensemble for the piano quintet, is uh, Catherine Montier on violin and Christophe Gauguet on the viola. This is on the Harmonia Mundi label. And it's a two-CD uh, album because Franck was also a little bit inspired by Wagner, and uh, that meant everything had to be long. Because <laughs> everything, for, from the time of Wagner until around 1945 after the war, People did really long pieces of music. Right. I really, I want to say I really appreciate that. Although, yeah, they are long. I'm like, man, I wish this was a little shorter. But uh, in our um, sort of, um, you know, eight second attention span era that we are now living in, apparently the, uh, the internet has shortened our attention span. Music like this pushes against that. And it kind of gives us a more like uh, 
spacious. Things have to unfold. Right. You, know, you get these melodies and where are they going to go? And you have to just kind of stay with them, you know, to find out. I think it's really good for us. It's a good, um, you know, alternative or just a contrast or yeah, something to give us a little bit of a workout from our, our usual, uh, you know, quick uh, changes and things like that. Anyway. This is uh, split into two CDs, and uh, it's uh, labeled like this on the streaming services, too. So the first CD features um, Franck's Piano Quintet and Louis Vierne's Piano Quintet. So we have the two extra players on this um, these tracks. All right, now the Franck Piano Quintet in F minor, Opus 14. I've heard uh, works of this in the past and uh, never really took to it until now because I liked this performance a lot. The first movement is molto moderato quasi lento, and I like the warm yet passionate beginning the Wanderer with Montier and Gauguet give this work. It often comes across not as passionate, but histrionic, and that's what I kind of never really liked about it. Mm. But they sort of temper that opening uh, theme a bit. It's neatened up. The piano plays calmly afterwards, and the opening theme is played more for its sense of line then for passion, uh, don't worry. There's going to be plenty of passion in the works on CD too. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll get to that when I get to that. Anyway, I like the violin tone. It's a bit old school. I'm guessing that's going to be a. I don't know if it's a Montier or Philippe's Variabegian. I don't know who that is. I'm guessing it's the uh, trio wanderer guy, Philippe's Variabegian, because we hear it again on CD two when only the trio wanderer is playing. But it's a beautiful tone. It's kind of old school. It's got this kind of sort of, um, there's a nice sort of a woody kind of vibrato to it. I don't know how I'd describe it. I kind of want to call it woody or nutty or something like that. It's it's not this full like tone that you normally get today, like a sheen. It doesn't seem to have like a sheen to it. It's a little more uh, rustic, I guess. Okay, the piano playing is exquisitely lyrical. And the sound quality of the whole ensemble and the recording is beautifully transparent. It's an ideal chamber recording, especially for a work like this that can come across as unwieldy on a record. The piano introduces an energetic passion section after three minutes with some sped up figuration. Uh, the Wanderer take this slightly faster than I've heard on other recordings. Uh, the movement switches between slower lyrical playing and highly passionate, faster material. The piano is discreet throughout the movement, and I really appreciated this approach. It allows the musical line to come into focus more clearly. That said, there's some appealing thunder in the middle of the movement and the middle of the track uh, provided by the piano. Koch has a beautiful way of keeping the melody in the forefront despite stormy accompaniment in his left hand that makes this performance very successful. The strings, meanwhile, get a romantic feel that give the rhythm and tone a sweet, elastic feel. Listen especially when they come in in the 11th minute. Uh, this very long and very big movement reaches an exciting climax toward the end of its 14th minute. Well prepared for and well taken. The material then peters out to a quiet tonic chord. Second movement, lento con molto sentimento. Uh, the opening and repeated chords are gently taken in the piano, and we get that appealing old-school flexible tone from the violin line, a sound that goes straight to the heart and that we simply don't hear enough of these days. The lyrical melody, because the violins are going for a big tone now, they want to be heard at the uh, back of the mm. room. The lyrical melody has a lot of harmonic space to play out in, and the ensemble play with an appealing hush that draws the listener into its circle. This movement is also fairly long at over nine minutes, as I said, Cesar Franck doesn't do anything small. 
So there's a lot of time to revel in the gorgeous tone and sensitivity of the playing. There is a crescendo and buildup of passionate tension leading up to the seventh minute, uh, then a beautiful letting go of that power into a hushed final two minutes, leading to a sensitively taken ending. The third and final movement, Allegro non troppo ma con fuoco, a rushing, circling violin line starts the piano with ominous chords heard in the piano and other strings. Mm. There's something church-like about the piano's chords after the 32nd mark. And at 109, the theme proper starts over an odd rhythmic figure in 3-4 or 6-8 in the piano, which the strings soar over. This is juxtaposed by a tension-building, sturdier section. There's a crescendo to a dramatic forte halfway through in the fourth minute. Then another wave comes in whose climax doesn't come. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of evaded climaxes in this uh, mm. in this uh, movement, a la Wagner, where you just build up and then you're just left hanging there. Earlier material and then the opening line is heard. This is part of um, Frank's um, cyclic style of performing where themes you heard in the first movement come back in the third. And he does that in a lot of his works. Uh, the movement is full of false cadences in which a cadence seems to approach only to have the harmony suddenly veer away from it with some new texture. Listen from the sixth minute on for a series of these events in which many of the previous themes are paraded before us before a final climax is approached forte, uh, crescendoing and decrescendoing in overlapping waves. Again, beautifully realized by the ensemble. Until the final notes are hammered out dramatically, but musically. The ensemble's realization of this piece is highly musical, outlining the form and themes satisfyingly and playing down the sometimes overwrought emotion a bit. I approve of this approach. I really enjoyed this um, performance of this work. I think this is the best performance of the piano quintet I've heard. And it's also the best performance on this album. Okay, they they tend to vary, but that the piano quintet is the one to sample, I guess. Anyway, next we get a, the piano quintet by Louis Vierne. I'll give you some information about him. He was uh, born virtually blind and was a student mm. in César Franck's organ class as an auditor in 1889. And he eventually studied with Charles-Marie Vidor, who took over Franck's class after Franck died in 1890. Uh, this quintet is his most famous chamber work. It was written in memory of his son Jacques, who was killed in World War I. Officially, it was said he was killed in action, so he's a hero of um, France. But it seems, in reality, uh, he was shot after refusing to fight. <laughs> so oh. probably a good thing they didn't tell his dad that. Anyway, he did get a piece written for him as a result. He wanted to create something that would stir in the hearts of fathers the deepest fibers of love for a dead son. Boy, what a sad story, mm. though. I don't think he ever found out, though. They said he was killed in action. Anyway, first movement, poco lento, and then moderato. It starts with tolling piano chords heard at the beginning, followed by wispy string harmony. The strings manage beautiful tone and a warm sound in this rather unstable, wandering harmony. Um, the full ensemble starts a tension-building crescendo as early as the first minute. The cello plays the more stable melodic sound theme, the melodic second theme, at two minutes over repeating piano chords. And the violin plays it again with sweet tone in the highest register. The full ensemble reaches an explosive climax at uh, 319, which leads directly to a repeat of the theme fortissimo. At 344, a new, more agitated piano accompaniment starts, which the strings play short, anxious lines over. There's a lovely pulling back to reveal a high violin line, and about the fifth minute, 
over repeating piano chords. This gets handed off to the cello and the two play in duet. Lots of expression and vibrato bring a lot of emotion to the performance. So we're getting kind of a little more emotional in this mm. piece than we were in the previous one. Uh, the movement has a lot of agitated moments to it and the crescendo in the seventh minute to another big climax at 725 is another example. With the piano pounding out a melody in the bass end as the strings saw at the accompanying harmony, it's a stormy section, thickly harmonized. It suddenly falls away to a lamenting piano theme in the eighth minute, and the movement tapers off on that emotion. The second movement is Larghetto Sostenuto. It has a ghostly string harmony at the beginning in a one-two rhythm. Dun, dun. It's very evocative. I like the approach. It engaged me right away. The cello plays a sad minor theme. The piano takes over uh, the theme solo, filling in the harmony as well. The strings come in to add to it as the piano falls into accompaniment. The melodic material then reappears in the cello, after which the piano builds up a crescendo and changes the texture in the third minute. The new rhythm and melody congeals into a thick harmony by the fifth minute, then suddenly pauses for the piano to a brief solo line. At 5.30 or so, the strings take over. In the sixth minute, there's a brief meditative section before the full harmony grief takes over again, forte. Pulsing rhythm at 6.55 only builds up the implacable emotion. Another brief meditative moment is heard in the piano in the eighth minute, after which we hear a new arrangement of the opening theme, softly played in the bass end of the strings over an arpeggiating violin. The arpeggiated figure is handed around the strings it's in the viola next, as the melody wanders to the cello. The ending piano theme is menacing, uh, responded to by placating string harmony. The quintet capture the constantly changing, but not too subtle emotions very well. Third movement, maestoso, agitato, allegro, molto, risoluto. It's three sections. We hear banged out, jagged piano chords at the beginning, responded to with sweet, lamenting string lines. A tremolo starts in the strings at 38 seconds, sounding ominous as the piano builds a theme in the bass, then gets a lighter solo line in the high end. At 150, the piano suddenly explodes into an aggressive, surging rhythm, and the strings play an impassioned melody over it. There's real rhythmic drive to this section, uh, which the ensemble maintain admirably. Variations on this sort of mad dance of a rhythm continue with consistently interesting rearrangements of timbral color. At 5.01, it suddenly stops and plays, and the piano plays a rumbling repeated note in the bass with tension building line in the right hand. The string come in pale sounding and vibratoless, playing harmony over the piano. At 6.52, the piano tries another approach with a line that reaches up the piano and reintroduces the galloping first theme in the strings. All the ferocious momentum is back, with the ensemble impressively sacrificing none of the beauty of individual tone they've maintained throughout. Lines are well-shaped and easy to pull out of these sometimes dense textures, and the rhythm is always palpable. There's a big, exciting final cadence. So I think in contrast to this work, I was happy that they played down the Franck piano quintet because mm. they really uh, go for the uh, histrionics in this piece. Now, for me, the, the histrionics don't stop. <laughs> we go into CD2, and we're really in that uh, Franckian histrionic mode. We next hear the violence not in A major. This is one of my favorite pieces ever. And it's had some really great performances on record. And here you're getting two uh, members of the trio Wanderer, the violinist and pianist playing it together. The poor cellist has to sit this one out. And um, I thought this 
performance, it was okay. It was there have been such great performances out there that um, I kind of thought, well, why did they record this? But probably because they wanted to, because they love it like I do. Anyway, let's hear what they did here. The first movement, Allegretto Ben Moderato. The piano opening is as poetic as most versions of this often recorded piece that I've heard. The violin has that old school vibrato tone that I've admired on this album so far. The opening is taken appealingly, and the violin line has a pleading quality to it as presented here. The cadence at about 145 doesn't come across with the sense of arrival that it does on other recordings, but it is satisfying. The piano's next busily arpeggiated line is a bit more measured and less expressive than I've heard, but satisfying nevertheless. When the opening theme repeats at 3.18, the piano accompaniment stands out more than usual, which I was interested to hear. The next climax arrives with more impact than the first. I don't like the hesitating piano line at 5.12. It sounds kind of contrived to my ear. I feel like it should flow more. Again, maybe personal taste. There's a nice sudden let up in volume before the last chord. Second movement, Allegro. Uh, this stormy movement, the piano line at the beginning is played without pedal. It's nice to hear the noty detail. Um, usually this is played as this big storm buildup with uh, the, the uh, bass notes all blurring. After this, we get the usual romantic approach. The violin is admirably audible despite its rather quiet tone in spite of the busy piano line when it plays the theme. This is a movement taken in a highly musical way, but I feel like it sacrifices some of its passion to achieve that musicality. My ears are mostly on the violin in this movement. The line at 158 comes across as prosaic to my ear. It's not putting me off, but I keep thinking of all the great performances of this piece that I've heard, not least Chung and Lupu, who for me are still the, the single best performance of this on record. They're absolute magic throughout. By 252, when the music uh, quietens, it's lost all forward momentum. The section at 313 is pretty, with the piano pushing the rhythm forward a bit with the quickly taken chords. At 424, the entire texture is clear and the piano takes these themes prettily. Detail admirably comes to the fore here. This sort of gives the repeat of the opening material a bit more momentum and passion. It sounds suitably stormy in the repeat. The re approach to the end is well timed out and the details on the violin's accelerating line are pleasing to the ear. All of the rhythmic impetus toward the end is clearly heard. The third movement, Recitativo Fantasia, Ben Moderato, dash to molto lento, molto lento, sorry. The piano starts this well, but the violin's burnished tone isn't really doing much to put across the almost histrionic passion that I expect from this movement. And in fact, the following piano line doesn't sound that sympathetic to the violin's opening statement. This feels more like more of an ensemble approach than two individuals conversing. The violin's next outburst at two minutes is too beautiful to be sympathized with. There's not enough contrast between the impassioned opening and the assuaging sound of the violin and piano playing together at four minutes and afterwards to pull me in. There's nothing wrong with the performance itself, it's just that there are so many better ones that have characterized the music in more compelling ways. It's a chamber ensemble approach to a piece that I feel has been better served by a pair of soloists. Fourth movement, Allegretto Poco Mosso. The opening of the canon is pretty and touching. There's good clarity in the performance, which the recording captures well. All of the contours of the theme are outlined well by the ensemble. The violin tone does a lot to pull the ear in with its burnished tone. When it gets the, to the second theme, it takes it quickly. The change of texture at around 235 is heard with great clarity. 
The climaxes in the more fortissimo sections leading to climaxes aren't quite the emotional releases they can be. The movement as a whole is rather tame, and that serves the canonic material well, but not the more impassioned outbursts. The end is reached with good momentum. Now, the thing is, this is a you know, perfectly fine performance of this work. But overall, just because I, I love this work so much and I've heard so many great performances of it, I came across as a bit disappointed by it. Now, I don't want to put listeners off. You listen to it yourself and find out what you think. But I keep thinking of Kyungwa Chung and Radulupu. It's just such a great performance. And there are other ones I liked too, but that one's still the peak. Anyway, the last work on the album is a Trio Contratante in F sharp major, opus one, number one by César Franck. Now he recorded, um, or sorry, he composed three piano trios, his opus one, number one, two, and three. You know, why not, like the Schumann disc uh, three years ago, add another disc, have this be a three-disc set, and put the other two piano trios on that. Anyway, we only get this one on this recording. Now the first movement is Andante con Molto. This starts with a creeping staccato piano bass line. The cello plays the completely contrasting legato, highly sustained melody, and the violin comes in with a quicker line. The tones of the instruments blend well, but are all distinct. This, incidentally, is the first time we're hearing the trio as a trio on this album. Mm. About an hour and a half, of, after about an hour and a half of music. The violin plays the second theme sweetly and appealingly. The characterization of each individual part in this piece is appealing and compelling. The piano seems to have a staccato part throughout, it sounds close to percussive, driving the more melody-infused instruments on. The piano finally turns to more melodic material just after the three-minute mark, and Vincent Koch on the piano insists on keeping the bass staccato to throw the rest of the material into relief. The cello and violin eventually join in with a legato melody. By five minutes, the piano is back to staccato patterns, descending here as the strings play harmony. A fortissimo is reached at 6.30, and the... In entire next section is played at this dynamic. Here the sort of histrionic character of the material is well characterized. There's a sense of anxiety to the material over the piano's repeating chords. For the tail end of the section, the music decrescendos and we hear a repeat of the piano's melodic theme from back at the three minute mark. The creeping staccato bass line from the opening returns to end the movement and the last thing we hear is a final forte chord. Second movement, Allegro Molto. Repeated staccato chords on the piano provide accompaniment to this movement, which seems derived from the scherzo of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Remember that one? We have a similar rhythm here. It, yeah, it's got, in fact, we have the same rhythm and kind of a similar theme as well. We then hear more rustic sounding material as the kind of middle section to the scherzo theme. There's a strong cadence at around the two-minute mark. Then a new section with new themes in the same scherzo meter are heard handed off between violin and cello. The piano eventually gets involved in this. At 2.54, the opening material is heard again, quickly moving to the rustic double-stop theme. At 3.52, there's a smooth rising chord sequence from the piano that the strings echo, then play along with. At the five-minute mark, the scherzo material is outlined by pizzicato strings and staccato piano. The line rises until it reaches a climactic peak, then wanders, crescendoing again to a connection with the third movement, which is marked Allegro Maestoso. It begins with an emphatic chord and a new rhythm. The piano is pretty busy with scales and octaves as the violin and cello 
play winding melodies. At 129, a quieter, more lyrical melody is heard, with the cello playing pizzicati and the piano accompanimental material. As a variation on the theme is heard, the piano gets busy in the accompaniment with virtuoso material. Indeed, this is a set of variations, this movement. The one in the third minute quietens down, then there's an emphatic marching version of it in the fourth minute, and a rather wild twisting outburst at 445. At 532, a new variation bursts out of the piano accompaniment with the violin leading. Uh, I like the uh, creeping pizzicato variation at 545. This builds up to a new one with an emphatic busy piano accompaniment as the cello plays the theme. There's some dips into a quieter dynamic, but they're momentary, and the ending is played at a straight fortissimo to the end. Yes, uh, Cesar Franck likes the fortissimo dynamic. Okay, and that's all of the music. To sum up, big-boned music was in vogue in Franck's time, and we certainly get that here, both in volume and in work length. I have to say, after two hours of this, Frank really likes the fortissimo dynamic marking. I like it too, but I don't know about two hours of it. A lot of this music is played to the volume saturation point. Now, that doesn't affect the recording in any negative way. The recording is uh, fantastic and captures uh, all of the dynamics really well. The trio Wanderer and their guests managed to make all of this timbrely attractive and musical throughout. The two quintets are the best pieces here, timbral beauty coming out of the textures. In fact, this two-disc set really sounds like two separate albums, and I'm rather curious about why The Wanderer didn't include trios two and three on a third disc, as I mentioned earlier. The first trio comes across well, the only time we hear the entire trio play as their own ensemble on the album. For me, the best account is the Franck Piano Quintet, as I mentioned earlier. I liked hearing it toned down a bit from its often hysterical, passionate emotion um, on other performances, and the textures all come across beautifully, though the inclusion of the violent sonata for me was a mistake. There are far more poetic versions of it available than the one we have here, and Raphael Pidou had to sit it out. A lot of Frog's histrionics are toned down in all but the piano trio at the end. Perhaps the Wanderer didn't want to exhaust us, um, but I think I was pretty exhausted by the end of this anyway. The album makes a decent two-part program, and despite my reservations for the Violent Sonata, all of the works come up in good performances and interpretations. I've got to say, though, listening to this album made me realize that I prefer to hear a single Franck work mixed in with other composers rather than an entire two-disc album of his music. There is a Louis Vierne piece in there, too, but even so. Franck often has his foot heavily down on the fortissimo pedal. Uh, too often and for too long for my taste. So it's a, they're good renditions of music that really are kind of, it, it's not rough going. It's just like, oh man, just <laughs> calm down a little bit, you know? <laughs> two, uh, two hours of Fortissimo is rather hard. Yeah, I've listened to Trio Wanderer for quite a few years now. They've got a pretty good recording catalog. And I'm always in uh, kind of a trio mode in the spring. I don't know why, but uh, I always go back and listen to some of their recordings and see I if like, they've got I something like a good new. trio. And uh, yeah, I liked all these performances. Let's see. Of course, I know the quintet, Franck's quintet, quite well. And of course, the violin's not. I've got quite a few recordings of that. Yeah. And the Vienne was new to me. And also the final Franck trio. I don't yeah. think I've heard that before. So that was kind of interesting to uh, hear that. Uh, I enjoyed all the performances. Uh, as you say, Franck's music is a bit exhausting. Uh, <laughs> it certainly once. is. So I listened to it all on one day, too. And I kind of 
you know, listening to each CD on a different day would have been a little bit better just because of the nature of the intensity. But I've always found in their other recordings, too, that they give a very measured and musical approach to most, a lot of romantic recordings they've done. And that's kind of their approach in general, which I usually find enjoyable. I can follow all of the lines in the piano uh, mm. quite well in their recordings. He's a good pianist, Vincent Cork. Yeah. He's really good. Very clear and measured approach, but musical at the same time. And I found mm. that here in general. As you say, it's hard to compete with all of the violin sonata recordings that are out yeah. there. And it would have been interesting to hear the other Franck works, but maybe they'll be coming out also on a different recording too. So yeah, we'll have to see. But anyway, yeah, I always enjoy Trio Wanderer. So it was nice to have this. And uh, do check out some of their other previous recordings yeah i <laughs> here i am saying oh, it's a little too too much uh intensity for for me to this two to set and then i want the then i say oh i want, and more. <laughs> I, I, I want anyway, the other yeah. two piano <laughs> trios too you know it's like it's like that woody allen joke you know how life is just full of misery and suffering and and it's over way too soon you know you just want both <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? right, anyway uh, my last uh, pick for this week is a uh, contemporary composer. I'm going to get back to these in a big way, I think, in coming weeks. Although, yeah, next week, too. We got, we got this, too. This is music by, the, uh, by Roberto Sierra. He's a uh, Puerto Rican. And uh, this is his Symphony Number no. 6, Sinfonietta for String Orchestra, Two Pieces for Orchestra, Fandangos, and Alegria. Played by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Domingo Hindoyan. And this is on the Onyx label. So this album presents music from Sierra's entire career. A common element in his music is the use of idioms that stem from Afro-Caribbean music, and more specifically from the folk and popular music of Puerto Rico. Hmm. All right. Now, whenever we get music from the Americas, whether it's from the United States or from the, uh, the Hispanic uh, parts of America, you had mentioned this uh, to me this week, actually, Russ. Um, it's more groove-oriented than European music. It's really funny. Right. The Americas are groove-oriented, and Europe is more kind of, um, I don't know what we'd call it, a melodic, I'd say, mm. or maybe theme-based or sh- structured or harmonic or something, you know, harmonically structured, things like that. But the groove puts across a lot, and you really need to get that groove right. And it seems that the best orchestras for that kind of music are Orchestras from the uh, from the Americas, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but we'll get to that a little later. Here we have an English orchestra, uh, the Royal Liverpool playing this, and they're a fantastic orchestra. But let's uh, get into this. Um, track one, Alegria. This is a short piece. Roberto Sierra writes the notes, and they're very helpful. Uh, many pieces from the Caribbean, Central, and South America that express a playful and joyous mood are in six eight meter, as is this piece. Uh, and this is Sierra talking. This opens with an explosive circling fiesta of a pattern, heavy on rhythm and harmonies and thematic material that we associate with Hispanic orchestral music of the past. There are even some humorous trombone glissandos in there. Okay. The middle section quiets down, yet is still full of festive fanfares. There's a lot of wind and brass in the orchestration, and the RLPO captures the rhythms well, if not entirely idiomatically. Now, when I say idiomatically, I'm talking about that groove. Uh, the rapid repeated notes are a bit dynamically too precise for me. And they, to me, they would be like moving the rhythm forward if you kind of mm. played them in a groove fashion. Uh, but the layered writing 
adds more magical Latin texture to constantly beguile the ear. I especially enjoyed the pulling back and approach to the end of the piece in the last 40 seconds, and the work ends on a big final chord. Now, the work has a lot of rhythmic layers to it, and the um, orchestra and the conductor approach this with great precision. And that's important. All the lines stand out really well, and you could hear them. I just wish they would have that um, more kind of um, Latin American groove to them. But I really can't complain. This actually sounds like very complicated music. And uh, it's really well put across here, let's say. Tracks two and three, Dos Piezas para Orquesta. From 2017, the first one, Combo Un Lament, it starts uh, solemn, somber, and has an almost processional character to it. It contrasts right away with the opening piece, and what draws my ear is the layering of separate lines in different sections of the orchestral. This is one of uh, Sierra's uh, techniques, and I like it a lot. At a minute and 32 seconds, there's a sudden lamenting decrescendo with the strings playing sustained harmonies, and some percussive and wind section details peeking out occasionally. There are quick rhythmic outbursts in the third minute that disappear and calm to a soft clarinet melody, uh, blending with the sustained string texture. Distant fanfares are heard at 440, and the dynamic suddenly amplifies to feature foreboding timpani hits. The piece ends on mysterious sustained chords that drop out at the end. The second piece, marked Animando, contrasts with the first one. It's agitated and exuberant. It starts with the agitated material, which decrescendos to a new, still agitated section at about 30 seconds. Distant agitated fanfares are heard in the second minute over percussion and tremolo string textures. The piece has a rushing, anxious quality at this point. We hear another new section just after the four-minute mark. There's some satisfying brass in this section, playing out and carrying the chords at one point. The climax results in a haunting string harmony that accompanies a crescendo by the rest of the orchestra to the ending, which doesn't feel like it's released all that tension. Tracks 4 through 7 are a sinfonietta for string orchestra. This was written in 2020 during the early days of the COVID pandemic. The first movement, marked ritmico, is in sonata allegro form. Uh, the intro has an angular rhythm and thematic line. The main section starts second, uh, seconds after this. It features rushing string accompaniment over these more angular themes. Pizzicati are heard in accompaniment shortly afterward. They take over the theme as the upper strings play circling patterns. New patterns materialize pretty quickly in this movement, so I can't really articulate them all. Just, let's say, Sierra packs a lot of ideas into his works and into this movement. Mm. He's also got a lot of ideas for um, changing the sounds of the strings. We're hearing only string instruments, yet he gets a lot of uh, timbres mm. out of them, a lot of uh, different uh, string techniques to make the, uh, the sound palette really interesting. As the second minute is reached, we hear a more romantic theme, but this quickly morphs into a more aggressive line with crisp pizzicati acting as accents. By 3.20, we're back to the opening material after an eventful development section. At 3.30, we hear what I think is an accompanimental pattern played on the bridges of the instruments, melodic material flying by in the upper strings. It's a really cool sound, the overall uh, sound that he gets here. As the quiet ending is reached, we also hear the strings being struck with the bows. A lot of effects were used in this movement. Second movement, Expressivo, features the Puerto Rican danza, a popular piano genre, 
during the 19th century. And in fact, we've heard uh, danzas on this uh, podcast before in some of the uh, jazz recordings that we did in the uh, more Latin sounding mm -hmm. uh, albums. I can't remember which ones now, though. Anyway, pizzicato accompaniment over the melting string theme above. There's a lot of quick textural changes in this movement, too, as though each section is a quick variation on orchestrating and harmonizing the melody. There's a droning accompaniment with low vibratoless strings taking the theme at 145. Bows head toward the bridge for a more ghostly sound as the music goes on. Then at 248, we get a straightforward romantic 19th century style theme, straightforwardly played. The unison statement at about 220 grabs the ear before dissolving into quieter, mistier harmonies. Cellos play fragments of the theme as the ensemble does a natural fade to end the movement. This is really beautifully executed, this movement. The third movement is marked vivo, a pizzicato heavy movement, and brief at less than two minutes. The rhythm is lively and pizzicati are accented by occasional bow strikes on the strings. Just after the one minute mark, we hear contrasting sustained vibratoless chords, then the pizzicati return for the mysterious ending. The fourth movement, marked rapido, has the work closing at its, as it started. A quick circling rhythm accompanies the scurrying theme. At around 1.15, the theme suddenly changes to a walking accompaniment in the bass as the violins play a melodic theme. A rolling rhythmic pattern starts up at 1.55 and ends at 2.12. A solo violin starts a theme that is soon accompanied by imitative fugato patterns. This dries up and the violin plays quick thematic patterns over pizzicati strings. I like the uh, brief droning string effect with pizzicati and the violins about halfway through the third minute. Syncopated melodic material leads to the circling patterns that end the piece. Track 8 was a little unusual. It's called Fandangos, and it was um, composed in the year 2000. And uh, Sierra tells us in his notes, uh, the point of departure for this work was Antonio Soler's famous Fandango for harpsichord, a piece I know pretty well. Um, Sierra also includes the incorporation of elements from Boccherini's and Domenico Scarlatti's respective Fandangos, neither of which I know very well, so I wasn't really sure where they came in. But I did hear the Solaire really throughout, almost. There are also some Baroque musings from Sierra himself. Music from the past blends with the present in a continuum of constant harmonic, melodic, and timbral variations. This piece has a really old-world feel to it, something more elegant than the world we live in now, despite a few more modern orchestral touches. Once the melodies start, we're in the past. For the first Fandango, there's staccato brass accompaniment, an interesting touch. The orchestration will sometimes play up the more Baroque profile of the melodic material, but the orchestration and harmony often lands this piece in the 20th century. There are even castanets toward the end of the first minute. I have to say... The Fandango resembling Solaire's at the beginning of the second minute doesn't have the constantly building momentum that his has, but I'm guessing at least part of that is intentional. The themes are often broken up by modern orchestration and harmony. Uh, the pacing of the work does seem a bit slow and measured in tempo. The orchestration is extremely modern sounding at the fifth minute, then snaps back to the Solaire Fandango pattern with ghostly sounds from the orchestra accompanying. More compelling orchestral timbres without the driving rhythm are heard after 6.30 and at 7.11, after which the Fandango rhythm and theme return. In the end, I think this performance comes across as too carefully rendered, though the orchestra is expertly balanced. The Fandango themes tend to march more often than dance. I think a wilder quality is called for. It's an interesting piece, though, full of familiar material juxtaposed with modern 
orchestral textures. Now, I think the Fandango is, I think it was imported from the Americas to Spain, but it was um, done in Spain too. And uh, I, I felt like they should have um, put this rhythm across with more excitement anyway in this piece. It's a, it's a nicely uh, performed piece though. You can hear the, um, the orchestral textures all very clearly. So it's good for, for that reason. Tracks 9 through 12 are the Sinfonia number no. 6, written in 2020 to 2021. So the conductor, uh, Domingo Hindoyan, commissioned this in a program that would feature Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Sierra replied to him that if he wrote a companion symphony to Beethoven's Ninth, it would be his sixth, and he'd have to make it a pastoral symphony since Beethoven <laughs> made his sixth symphony a pastoral symphony. It was a joke, but the idea started to take hold as they often do. So the symphony has programmatic content. I don't know, programmatic, but not really a narrative, let's say. The first movement is marked uh, Memoria Urbana. And Sierra says this contains the pulse and vitality of city life. The opening comes across as busy and sophisticated. There's a rushing quality to the rhythm, especially after the 32nd mark, where we hear the rapid string propulsion in the accompaniment. At the one minute mark, this busyness breaks up and we get a quieter, more nocturnal theme, making me think of being in a well-furnished apartment on the upper floor looking out at the city. The rhythm that follows has a Latin feel to it in its propulsion. At 7.20, I believe that's a xylophone in the accompaniment. You don't really hear enough of those. Did you think so? Do you remember this? Oh, well, there's uh, xylophone on this recording all over the place, yeah. Yeah, but there's a marimba too, I think. There's marimba um, in the next track, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I, I'm, I sometimes have trouble telling the two apart because I just don't hear the xylophone enough. But the xylophone, I, the way I think of it, it has a more bony sound, whereas yeah, the marimba yeah. sort of rings a lot. This section slowly evaporates, the xylophone part, uh, leading to something more urgent after the three-minute mark. I liked the brass and percussion texture at 345. Uh, the brass with a really cool attack accented by a hand drum. At 4.32, a Latin-sounding rhythm with a pause in it comes through. Percussion is always heard in the distance, like there's like some party going on, sort of uh, not too far away. At the end of the movement, the strings drift downwards, and a repeating flute pattern ends the movement slowly. Track 2 is labeled De Noche, and uh, Sierra comments the magical nights of the tropics with the infinite starry skies and sounds of the fauna inspired this movement. And this one has a marimba at the beginning and winds evoking bird songs. Uh, this section is atmospheric and the movement seems to evoke distant goings-on heard from a quiet place. Third movement, Huracan, or a hurricane, I guess. Uh, the inspiration was the terrifying natural forces of the tropics. A sudden change as we get a buildup of rolling material. This would be the uh, Beethovenian storm of this pastoral symphony, if we're thinking of it that way. The storm's approach is majestically announced by brass toward the end of the first minute, then syncopated, accented chords urgently call out. They're trombone glissandos that give a sense of instability and unpredictability. Then a crystalline harmony is heard at 138. A quiet section of marching strings and fluttering winds follows. More turbulent material follows, then a gentle atmospheric section at 338 leads to the final stormy disturbance that ends the movement. And the final track, uh, movement four, the last track on the album, which is track 12, is a celebration of the rhythms of the Caribbean. 
It starts with percussion, and very satisfyingly so. It sets a tropical atmosphere. Again, the strings and winds play quietly, giving the sense of sound being carried on the wind from far away. The rhythms are piled on to one another, and again, uh, come across as precisely played, so beautifully layered, and uh, the orchestra does well to sort of uh, have them stand out. But again, it takes away from the thrust and excitement contained in them. I feel like this uh, movement is almost like a mirror of the first piece that we heard on the album. It's a similar idea. They're all immediately appealing, um, all of these, uh, sec these uh, rhythms or themes that are going on at the same time. Uh, there's a cool ear-catching texture after 315 with percussion and winds that I really wished had lasted longer, but the rhythms all crowded and interrupt each other as we would hear if we were in the Caribbean. The changes of rhythm seem to come more quickly as the piece goes on. There's a chiming atmospheric accompaniment to the distant reeds at 630, just before the final crescendo brings us to a rousing, rhythm-filled ending. Okay, so this is an album full of Latin color, and the... Um, the Liverpool um, Philharmonic do well to put those colors across. The timbres are really vivid on this um, album. The pieces have um, lots of Latin rhythms and colorful orchestration as well. Um, we're talking about the kind of rhythms an orchestra can produce. So there's no salsa in this, no, none of that kind of thing. <laughs> right, it's more old school, okay, old school rhythms, uh, like you would have heard on popular music recordings from, say, the 1950s or so. Um, I thought the orchestra were better in the more formal Sinfonia and Sinfonietta than in the more rhythmically fueled Fandangos and Alegria. And of course, the last movement of the Sinfonia too. I felt like um, those are more groove-oriented movements, and I would have liked to have heard those done, say, by an American orchestra who really does naturally feel those grooves. Although then you wonder if you're going to get the, the really high-quality like playing of the different sort of levels and textures of the uh, different layers of the uh, piece. Anyway, on this album, the character of all the pieces is put across. It's a composer whose appealing melodic and rhythmic sense is attractive on a first listen. I would urge you to hear it. I feel like there's a lot more excitement in this music, though, than comes across in this album. But it's still, these pieces come across well here. It's rhythmic, exciting, instantly appealing music. You have a lot of fun uh, getting into the rhythmic elements and the melodies are all really attractive as well. I really enjoy the orchestration. Yeah, me too. He uses the full mm. palette of the orchestra, especially good low brass parts, interesting yeah. percussion. Uh, at some points, you'll get kind of the uh, Leonard Bernstein, what he was going for with a West Side Story kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Those rhythms come out. And yeah, yeah it's, it's a good performance. I would like to hear some of this music performed by a Latin American ensemble. Uh, orchestra just to uh, hear how you know players who are culturally brought up with those rhythms would uh, sort of uh, interpret this and maybe as you say bring a little bit more rhythmic uh, intensity authenticity to it but it's a fine performance here as well I enjoyed his music yeah I just want to mention what I'm thinking of there those that uh, Mozart Mambo album by uh, Sarah oh, Willis right, right. you know yeah the, she recorded that with um Cuban Cuba, orchestra right, yeah. and um when they got to the more kind of Latin sounding, like they, they arranged like Mozart as like a Latin piece and man, did that move. I mean, oh, they really, good, yeah. they were just right on top of it. It was great. I would have liked to have heard that sort of approach to this music. And, you know, not, not that I don't want to complain about this. This is, this is uh very good, but I'd yeah. like to hear his music 
played in that way and see what it sounds like, you know, what comes out. Hmm. Yeah, but definitely an, an exciting so project, composer. Uh, Roberto. Yeah, it's exciting yeah. composer. I'd say so too. I'd like to hear more. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I just wanted to, the, la the, the last word is uh, to um, Mr. Sierra, Maestro Sierra. I, I like him as a composer. So more, please. Yeah. <laughs> get, those, get some more recordings. This is really good. Okay, moving on to the jazz portion of the program. We're going to have a lot of original music this week, which I like, but I always uh, get uh, obsessed. I want to figure out all the compositions, <laughs> you know. When mm -hmm. you get some standards, you can sort of uh, sit back a bit and just focus on the interpretation or what's new with it. But we're going to have a lot of exciting uh, new compositions on all these recordings, a few standards mixed in as well. I'm going to start out with a piano trio up to quintet, and it's by pianist Keigo Hirakawa. The recording is Pixel. It's on Origin Records, and it was released on June 16th. Now, who is Keigo Hirakawa? Well, it's a pianist born in Tokyo. He started playing piano at age four. He moved to the U.S., Ohio, to be specific, at age 11. I think that would make him around 44 years old now. Mm -hmm. uh, he went to a summer jazz camp after junior high school when playing saxophone. Then he returned to playing piano after getting hooked on jazz music. But he ended up pursuing a career in engineering, still <laughs> developing his music skills and attending the New England Conservatory as a master's student while working to complete his engineering PhD dissertation. How do people and, do that? <laughs> He became an electrical and computer engineering professor in Ohio, but in music, in jazz, he has seven full-length album appearances, three as a leader. You can find his previous trio recording from 2015 on streaming services. It's called And Then There Were Three. So on this recording, we've got Keigo Hirokawa on piano, all compositions except for one, Raphael Staten on saxophones, flute, and bass clarinet. Brandon Scott Coleman on guitar, Robert Hurst on bass, and Alex White on drums. You're going to start right out with the title track for track one, Pixel. And this one builds up from a four-measure pattern of spaced-out right-hand piano chords and cool skittering left-hand bass lines. The second time around, Hurst's bass joins in with that left-hand bass, and White sneaks in with hi-hat and other light drumming. Coleman adds some spongy, chorusy guitar chords and then works a sparsely phrased lead line with Staten sax as the rhythm section pattern continues below. There's two eight-measure sections of that kind of an A section, then a contrasting B section with more jangly guitar and legato sax. That repeats, and the bass starts to take on a kind of pulsing samba feel to it. Then back to the intro figure for two rounds to set up Hearst for a busy bass solo. He's really driving it with strong attacks. And Staten follows with a husky and edgy-toned tenor solo, working up to angsty cries, and Hearst returns to that throbbing bass line. Coleman gets a guitar solo next, and he has one of those real fusion-type tones here that cuts right through all of the ensemble uh, with some interesting rhythmic phrasing. And Hirokata solos last with fast, fluid right-hand running lines and punchy left-hand chords, and he changes directions quickly in his solo lines. He gets more rhythmic as he pushes on. They bring back the playing to the intro idea, this time with more ringing guitar from Coleman, once more through the melody, and they close it out with that intro idea with some tight fills from White's drums underneath. It's an exciting tune to get things started. 
Yeah, Hidakawa seems to like that uh, running line for his solos. He does that on a lot of the a tracks lot. on this yeah. album, not all of them. Yeah, but he's yeah, and then the ideas kind of like I guess flow out of that. Flow out of that line, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting approach. Track two is called "Far Above." And it starts with an eight-bar intro of bass and piano playing cute loping lines that end in big rising intervals. Staten on soprano sax with Coleman's cleaner-toned guitar here. Take the happy melody together. It's an AAB type pattern. They repeat it, but the second time the guitar answers the sax phrases on the A section. Coleman continues on with a long guitar solo, clean-toned uh, with more uh, nice melodic ideas and phrasing. Hurst and White have a good evolving drum and bass groove going on underneath, and Hirakawa follows with a solo of happy lines with relaxed phrasing, sometimes taking a few unexpected harmonic turns. They take it through the melody sections again, and then it's Staten's time for a soprano solo, and he milks a soulful riff for a bit, and then gets into some reaching and screeching, climbing in some microtunnel increments to heartfelt hmm. high squawks. Wow. Uh, imagine uh, squeezing a goose under your arm and pulling its neck to get the high notes out. <laughs> That's <laughs> oh what God. it's like. Wow. Uh, he joins back with uh, Coleman for some final <laughs> melody measures to finish it up. Track three is called Home Somewhere. Uh, this tune is in a slow three-beat feel, but starts out with an intro of really cool doubled-up syncopated solo bass from Hurst. White adds some dancing cymbals and Hirakawa some chiming piano before Coleman and Staten come in with the flowing melody lines. The structure is a little different. There's a repeating eight-measure A section, a contrasting eight-measure B section, which sound like, it sounds like it's going to repeat, but it takes a different harmonic turn in the fourth measure to end early on the seventh measure, so it's like a 31-measure construction. Coleman's up first for a guitar solo, clean tone with a bit of edge, and Hurst is doing all kinds of bouncy bass things right through and varies things interestingly under the solo. Nice cymbal work and little fills from White. And Coleman works up to some searing high guitar lines with bite on this one. The rhythm feel works up into an intense Latin-y three-beat groove and then softens for Hirokawa to start a piano solo. He sounds springy in touch on this one, mixing things up with some descending chord ideas before getting more intense and speedy as the throbbing beat builds back up. He connects the lines nicely towards the end. Uh, Staten's next with a sultry soprano solo working up from the warm lower register to some cool harmonic exploration and descending shrieks before a soft ending. Uh, they give it a little soft reset for another run through the melody. And after a ringing guitar chord, piano, bass, and drums continue for uh, White to get some time to work around the drum kit with intense drumming into a return of the opening bass figure from Hurst and some soft soprano sax tones on top from Staten, and it fades out. Track four, my favorite composition here, Origami Beetle. Mm, I like and this one too. It's a very yeah, cool funny. rhythmic tune. It starts with a pattern of piano chords with bass, four repeating chords, and a final one. Uh, the beats will be offset, but you can count it in four or eight. And if you go for the double time, you're going to get eight measures of that. And then you'll be prepared for the angular sax and guitar melody that comes in on top, which actually forms a doubled up 12-bar minor blues construction that repeats. So it's like a kind of condensed blues form. And over that rhythm, it's a very interesting effect. It's very cool. Uh, Hirokawa starts soloing over the rhythm pattern there for two times around, and then they change it up 
and then into a fast swing at the doubled up tempo idea with chugging walking bass from Hearst. Hirokawa's got a nice flow going here with smooth lines of lots of ideas and harmonic exploration and percussive chords. He continues on with more zippy lines and rhythmic figures, and they bring back the opening rhythm for Staten to get started on a tenor solo. Hearst mixes up the bass a bit as Hirokawa drops out to let Staten blow freely, and Hearst gets it chugging again. Staten keeps things pushing forward with rhythmic licks, low and high bursts, and some Pharaoh Sanders soundscapes working up to high shrieks here. Uh, they bring it back to the intro into another couple times through the melody to wrap it up, and there's several or some small vocal reactions are left at the end of the track uh, between the players. Track 5 is Unmarked Path, another rhythmically exciting tune. There's a 16-measure intro of syncopated piano right-hand figures and chords and chasing left-hand piano and bass lines that sometimes intersect. You can count it in a slow 3 to get ready for the melody. It's played by, I think, flute and then soprano sax and guitar, although the notes for the recording say bass clarinet on this track. I don't hear it. Uh, it's 32 measures of melody, an 8-measure softly flowing section that repeats with some rhythmic variation in the lines, and the second 16 measures switches to the melody lines outlined in the piano intro that we heard before, with the soprano sax going up higher. Nice drum fills added by White. Coleman's up first for a guitar solo, more of a biting tone here, nice use of repetition in his ideas, and check out the very cool muted descending lines that he rips out in this one. Uh, he's a real guitar chameleon. He changes the kind of shape of tones and approach for each tune on this recording. They open the beat up a bit for Hirokawa to get started on his solo, and then get a new groove going with nice cymbal work from White. And Hirokawa ties long lines together, gets some speedy runs in as well in a long solo. Thick guitar and backing lines float in, and Coleman works up an interesting choppy interval backing line, and they take it through the melody sections again and finish up on a final rising line of notes. Track 6 called Yaw Pitch Roll. Stanton sits out on this trio tune. The structure is made up of a little swinging solo piano phrase that moves into some syncopated chords of moving modal harmony that the bass and drums lock in with hits on. That's an eight measure phrase that repeats, and there's a 12 measure section that chugs along with walking bass for improvised piano lines. They do that 8-8-12 pattern once more, and Hidokawa makes a final quote of the phrase before he's off and running on an extended solo that highlights his smooth phrasing, and he works up to some speedy double time playing too. Hurst gets a bass solo with ringing tone that turns a bit rhythmic and snappy on the way, and White gets to trade some eights and then fours with Hirokawa. They get back to the melody for the ending, but with a little twist. Over the 12 measure section, Hirokawa lets some pretty high chimes ring out before the last swinging phrase and then a few more piano trickles. Track 7 is Dreaming Awake, and this is an original by Brandon Scott Coleman, the guitarist, who starts it out solo and rubato with a dreamy, reverby intro of a melody line, moving bass line, and chords all on the guitar with a little touch of tremolo in there. The others join in with a very slow four-beat tempo. And ah, here's Stutton's bass clarinet, working hmm. the legato melody line with Coleman's guitar. It's very pretty with nice harmonies. There's a 12-measure phrase, and then it seems like it's going to repeat, 
but there are four more measures diverting into a little dissonance. Pretty trickles of notes from Hirakawa decorated, and Stanton carries on with a bass clarinet solo. He starts relaxed and becomes more animated. It's interesting how his tone is more sax-like higher up in the range, but then gets that full bass clarinet tonality when he plays down low. Coleman has a guitar solo with clean attacks and little harmonic tensions, and Hirakawa has a solo of flowing lines uh, with guitar and sax melody lines building underneath to a soft finish. It's very pretty and dreamy, like the title suggests. And the recording ends up with another Hirakawa original, Change of Plans, and it's aptly titled there are lots of changes as this one gets going. Uh, drums and Staten's tenor sax start out joined by choppy muted guitar notes from Coleman. Piano and bass join in with some cool synced up bass lines and chords, stop and go backing, and brief charges of walking bass. Uh, swing and change-ups to waltzing phrases come in. Uh, Staten gets a tenor solo first. It swings with walking bass, but then some change-ups to a Latin feel. Staten gets his Pharaoh Sander, Sanders-esque shrieks out in this one as well. Coleman follows on guitar, starting out with and working back to his cool muted ideas that he comes up with along the way. And Hirakawa has an energetic solo driving through swinging and Latin feels with smoothly phrased lines and a few rhythmically tricky licks thrown in as well. They vamp around for a while to give White some drum frenzy time, and then Staten returns for some melodic lines into the waltzing feel for a soft ending. So it's an enjoyable recording of all original music. I liked Hirakawa's compositions a lot. They're fresh and interesting, especially Origami Beetle was unique. Hmm. His piano solos are energetic and he has a good sense of swing and nicely connected long smooth phrasing. Stanton's reed playing is exciting and diverse with that goosey soprano, muscular <laughs> and gruff tenor, and the bass clarinet for more deep color. And Coleman's guitar work is eclectic and he finds something new to do on every tune with customized tone and phrasing. Hurst and White are tight and punchy on bass and drums. It's a very well engineered recording yeah. from a man of obviously many talents. Yeah, it's a, he engineered himself? No, no, but he's an engineer, so I Oh, his, I see. Yeah, so. I was going to say, it was, <laughs> that's quite a thing. Hey, I actually said a lot of the same things you did. I thought this album was really uh, breezy and uplifting, you know? Yeah. In a nice way, and it's it's mostly major key. It, it's got like it's it just really feels good. Um, Hidakawa, he's an interesting pianist. I feel like he's unique in the way he'll like play these continuing lines with no pauses. Not always, but on on most of the tracks, mm. and it seems like he could just keep that going forever and just kind of <laughs> yeah. just keep playing. Perpetual, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he's got this, uh, yeah, amazing ability there. Um, and the raw sax tone, like you said, I thought that was a good foil. Because, again, I'm thinking about contrast from my classical kind of way right, of listening. Right. He's a good foil for Hirakawa's smooth, uh, cheerful playing. So he, was a very, he was very different in tone. Mm. Yeah, I thought um, the other soloists had a lot of room to provide contrast because of the way like Hirakawa plays, and they all did that. And uh, it was, yeah, it was good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an uplifting one. It's kind of like the uh, jazz equivalent of the, uh, I guess, the Calcutta seventeen eighty nine album that we were talking about yeah. earlier. Maybe not, for, maybe maybe not for the early morning, but maybe ending the day with this one. It's a kind of a unique atmosphere to it, with the yeah. rhythms, unique compositions, and then these distinctive soloist personalities coming out in it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely, I'm going to go back and I've sampled a few of his earlier recordings, but uh, want to hear some more. Yeah, I thought, that was, I thought that was really interesting. But yeah. Another interesting recording for our second one, 
This is from saxophonist Clark Gibson. It's called Counterclock. It's on Cellar Live. This yeah. also came out on June 16th. Clark Gibson's a jazz saxophonist, composer, and the director of education at the Nash in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a concert jazz club, but it's more than that. They have education programs, and it seems like a kind of center for music there. Clark received his Bachelor of Music in Jazz at Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. His first independently released CD was called The Offering. Also in 2010, he recorded a second album, Iapetus. From 2012 to 2015, he completed his master's and doctoral degree at the University of Illinois. During this time, he recorded a third album as a leader self-titled as Old Style Sextet. And 2015, he released Charlie Parker with Strings, The Lost Arrangements. And his previous recording to this one, we're going to hear tonight, is Tricolored Eyes in 2019. Hmm. Now, the description of this recording says, Counterclock refers to looking back and not discounting art you created in your early stages as an artist. Gibson has come to embrace and celebrate his compositions from yesteryear. I am so on board with that idea. <laughs> but looking at his previous albums, I didn't notice these tunes have been recorded before. So mm. I don't know if they were just tunes that he wrote and had around and was mm -hmm. unsure of or he's performed them for years. But um, anyway, they're all very interesting. Hmm. I thought so too. This one sort of stood out for me this week. Yeah. I think. This is the standout because album. Because we've got for me. some monster players uh, yeah. along with Gibson. So Gibson's uh, mainly an alto saxophonist, but he also plays Barry on one track here. We've got the amazing Sean Jones on trumpet and Michael Deese, also Mr. Amazing on yeah. trombone. And right. he's he's on Barry sax on this one. We've heard him do Barry before, but uh, he's getting some really good Barry chops, uh, which we'll talk about when we get to it. And the always great Pat Bianchi on the Hammond B3 organ. And I believe piano too, although it's not in the credits. There's a little bit of piano in here. Luce Nash is on drums. And we're joined on a few tracks, uh, well, more than a few, maybe five tracks by vibraphonist Nick Mancini. Hmm. So we're going to start out with Conflict for track one, a Gibson original composition. It's an exciting modal tune to get things going. Nash and Bianchi get it started with an eight-bar intro with swinging, dancing cymbal, and very syncopated, offbeat, repeated organ chords. The horns pick up into short phrases over the intro rhythm idea for an eight-measure section. The harmony changes for another round of that same idea. And then there's a section of swinging smooth horn lines into drum fills for seven measures. Those three sections repeat and then there's a new 20-measure section of swelling, rising, and falling horn and organ lines over drum fills. Bianchi gets the intro groove going again to set up Gibson for a solo, but gets to a great swinging groove with walking organ bass and punchy chords. Gibson swings hard in his solo with fluid lines. His tone is interesting with a rich center to the tone, but sometimes a nice edge. Uh, some cool triplet lines mixed in and nice accents in his phrasing. There's another reset to the groove for Deese to step up, and he impresses with his fast and tricky slide work as usual, and some fun rhythmic licks. And Sean Jones follows with a nicely building solo, really navigating the changing harmonies and working up to a scream. I think I can hear a lot of Woody Shaw's harmonic influence in his ideas on this tune. Uh, one more organ reset, and then they play through all the melody sections again with a little slowdown into the final hold. It's an interesting tune and very intense solos to get started. Track two, Gibson's original 
the title track Counterclock, a medium swinging tune. The horns have a harmonized melody arrangement that has two 10-measure sections. Jones's trumpet is in the lead for the first half, and then Deesa's trombone swells more in the second section before the trumpet rises above the bone and sax lines. A pressing drum roll brings in Gibson for an alto sax solo first. Bianchi has a good groove settled in, and Gibson builds up from shorter lines of ideas with relaxed phrasing, but scoopy kind of articulation. There's some fun chord changes to navigate in this tune. Jones follows on trumpet, building up a great solo on this one. Some bluesy ideas, interesting intervals in his lines, and descending sequences, and then really squeezing out some high notes again on this one. Uh, it sounds like someone lets out a yeah, call or something when he finishes his solo in there. Uh, Bianchi gets a solo next, starting out with spaced out ideas with clear attack and building up to some cool high register licks and trills. The horns add smooth backing lines and come back with the melody sections. The end of the second section gets extended for Nash to drew some drumming over the organ. Then the horns return to finish it all up. Track three, Parting Place. Uh, Nick Mancini is in on vibes on this one, and he gets to start it out on his own. Shimmering zips of notes go from right to left channel uh, as it's panned according to the range of the instrument. Then there's more placid and pulsing tones. Then soft vibes and organ get a very unique slow bossa beat groove going, which is joined by Nash. Jones takes the melody solo. Sounds like he's on flugelhorn here with a big fluffy tone. It's lush. Uh, harmonic backing with the vibes, organ, and soft sax and trombone lines coming in. I'm not sure about the structure here. It seems to be about a 40 measure melody, but there are nice rhythmic change-ups of hesitation and accents that come in on the 13th measure, and then they come again towards the end of the melody. Things quiet down for a bit of space before Jones starts an improvised solo. He plays restrained and very tastily. Nash and Bianchi have such a relaxed groove going underneath, and then Deese follows. He sounds great with a little pitch play and some tasty vibrato, and then gets more rhythmic. Bianchi solos next with fun, hesitated phrases, and Mancini lets some soft vibes chords ring out for backing. Things drop away just to the ghostly vibe vamp to make a reset before drums and organ join in to bring Jones back in on the melody to a minor chord ending. Track 4, Tunisia very sparse eight measure opening with a syncopated dark minor organ line and bass notes and light drumming. Drums fill the phrase gaps. It repeats and then Mancini comes in with some bluesy vibes for a melody. Trombone and sax get soft low lines building up to Jones joining in with a higher trumpet line. Mancini is playing along with the horns and Nash gets fills in between the phrase gaps. The beat gets tricky with some Latin-y shifts as it goes along. Mancini gets a break into a vibe solo, and Bianchi gets a loping organ bass line going underneath and punchy minor backing chords. Gibson has a suave and bluesy solo uh, starting out in the low register, and then some snappy licks with more scoopy phrasing. Bianchi follows with an organ solo, a great relaxed feel to start out, and he gets into more of a frenzy and holds out a long trill that builds up the tension until you just can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and the chords are really cool that he plays words before the horns join back in with some backing into more melody lines from before, but with a mushier kind of execution. Uh, Nash gets some fills over the original vamp before Bianchi finishes it up quietly. Then we're going to get our one non-original tune, 
George Gershwin's Embraceable You. And this is actually uh, not part of, you know, this studio set, but it was recorded live at Lowdown Jazz Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, March 4th, 2022. And it's a great sounding live uh, number here. Gibson starts it out with an improvised solo working around the harmonies of this standard tune. He mixes in fluttery phrases, bluesy licks, and little bits of melody so you can keep your place in the progression. Organ and drums come in for the official melody start, and Gibson adds in tasty filling licks between phrases. He gets a little cadenza at the end of the tune, too. Tasty stuff, and the crowd really loves it. I love to hear crowds go wild for a ballad that's played. <laughs> Just beautifully. That's always nice. Yeah. Now back to uh, original tune, but this time from Nick Mancini, arranged by Clark Gibson. Oats is back. Now just drum roll and hit, bring it in to get the horns going on a loping, swinging melody. There's a repeating eight-measure section of horn arrangement. Then Jones, Deese, and Gibson get to take lead on shorter four-measure sections in turn before all joining together for another eight-measure section. Gibson solos first over a soft, halting groove by Bianchi and Nash. Jones follows, and then Deese with some really slick slide work. Gibson and Jones have some shorter exchanges, getting more animated, and then Mancini and Bianchi get some solo exchanges with soft horn line backing, and they pick it up from the traded off short melody sections we heard earlier, uh, starting with Jones, then Deese and Gibson to take it to the end. By the way, did we uh, find out who Oates is? I don't know. Okay, we're no. going we're gonna to have to ask the, uh, the ensemble there if you guys are listening. It could be. Who's Oates? Yeah, right who's to Oates? us. I don't know. <laughs> could be Warren Oates, the oh, great yeah. character actor. Yeah. Yeah, this by the way, this this next track put this album over the top for yeah. me. It was a really <laughs> great the ending. The cake. Yeah. Back to a Gibson original Baptude. Yeah, this was great. And a big contrast with a fast tempo uh for the last tune. A drum hit gets an eight-measure intro, vibes and organ, chord exchanges going. The horns join in on the vamp idea for once around and then launch off on a fast boppy AABA melody construction. That's Gibson and Deese, both on Barry sax here. And check out the cool Barry lines on the contrasting B section of the melody. Yeah, this was so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the two baritone saxes playing like this was just great. Yeah. They get back to the intro vamp section to build up tension for a solo break. And then it's time for a Barry battle between Gibson and Deese. Yeah, this the is great. The licks are hot and fast as the phrases get shorter. And then they join in together uh, for the end uh, until the final foghorn note <laughs> that results there. Uh, it's so much fun. Mancini follows on vibes, and he sounds like he's had a few espressos uh, but with all the speedy mallet work going on. Uh, stay out of the way. There's lots of uh, felt flying there. Jones gets some zippy boppy eight bar solo exchanges with Nash, which turn into four measures and then end up playing together. Everyone is back for another run through the melody. The vamp and a final line of the melody uh, start into a big finish. Uh, a great fun ending track. Man. So there's a lot to enjoy on this recording. First, Gibson's compositions are engaging and unique. Lots of variety of style structures, rhythms, and moods. The arrangements have a lot of tonal richness and with the three horn lineup over Bianchi's organ and bass work, even a little bit of piano thrown in there. And then there's the addition of Mancini's vibes, which give a lot of atmosphere. Then, of course, the soloing. Gibson's alto tone is rich, and his solos are energetic and creative, drawing on the bebop and post-bop legacy. I can hear hints of Cannonball Adderley, Phil Woods in his style. 
Uh, Sean Jones's solos here are exciting and adventurous, and Michael Deese is always exciting and technically amazing. Gibson and Deese's berry battle on Bop Dude is the icing on the cake for all the great horn solos. Yeah. And Bianchi has some good solo spots, but mostly he's really making these tunes happen with great bass lines, perfectly chosen organ tones that match each tune's atmosphere, and locks in really well with Nash's drums. Yeah, for me, it was like the final track on the album, you know, Bop Dude, with its smoking playing from everyone yeah. uh, that really yeah. grabbed my attention. But I did like all of the album. I thought, you know, Harding Place, Tunisia, Oats is Back were moody and atmospheric. I really appreciated Pat Bianchi's subtle accompanimental tr- contribution to both tracks uh, with his sound and approach. I didn't name three tracks, but anyway, yeah, I did like <laughs> the entire album. Yeah, it's an enjoyable album. There's a long kind of... In the middle of the album, there are a lot of down-tempo tracks, like um, they're atmospheric and even sexy. I was thinking like uh, the rhythm on Counterclock and Oats is Back. I kind of mm. found them to be really sexy sounding. And I'm really glad they put Bob to the last. Otherwise, I would have been thinking about that for the entire rest of the album. And I just wouldn't <laughs> yeah. have heard it. So, yeah, good programming there too. Yeah. yeah. This one, I might want to get this one. This sounds good. Yeah, it was enjoyable. Mm. And I saved the biggest for the last. We're going to go big band here. Also out on June 16th, all these recordings came out on the same day. And this is the new one from Stephen Feifke, Catalyst yeah. on La Reserve Records. We're big fans of his here. Yeah, big fans yeah. because we first heard Feifke on his uh, Kinetic yeah. recording. That was back in episode 11, which was called Killer Bees, Bach, Busoni, Bruckner, and Big Band. <laughs> and that recording right. made our best of uh, 2021 jazz list as well. Hmm. And we heard a prologue in episode 34, a big band booze up. And I think that was actually recorded <laughs> before One Kinetic. One of titles, I have to say. Yeah, in 2019. <laughs> and then, of course, we heard the Grammy-winning Generation Gap Jazz Orchestra in episode 83, Beefy Beethoven and Big Band. So we've been following all of uh, Stephen Feifke's releases, and he's had more in there, too. He had a uh, piano trio release. And actually, this is his sixth album release in two years <laughs> he's got to slow down here boy now, when you think about the orchestrations he does too they're pretty complicated with constantly changing oh, yeah. sections so he's got to be working all the time because yeah, i don't think he just kind of like you know just write that down in an afternoon or no, anything like not that. all those arrangements so of this recording oh. uh, steven says i recognize myself more in the music i've written for catalyst it's closer to my heart it's very personal music about things that i care about now Interestingly, the co-founder of La Reserve Records, Matt Block, says this is a level of vulnerability that we haven't heard from Stephen yet. Each of his releases just keeps getting better and better. Well, I agree with the last part of that, but I, I don't agree about the vulnerability. This yeah. sounds really confident to me. In yeah, all of this I didn't music. get vulnerability out of this. It doesn't mm. sound like overly sensitive. It does sound very creative in yeah. you know, the usual fountain of ideas that this guy is, really. Yeah. Also, what's with his thing with his these scientific terms for his album titles, like Catalyst, Kinetic, you know, they kind of sound like uh, mechanical physics or something like that. he's describing the uh, energy involved, uh, maybe. Anyway, let's go through the musicians here. Stephen Fife on piano and all these great arrangements, of course. Bass, we've got Dan Chmielinski. Drums, Brian Carter. Also, I believe we've got Jimmy McBride on a... Drums on a tune. Guitar, Alex Wintz. The Woodwinds, Andrew Gould, Alexa Tarantino, Lucas Pino, Sam Dillon, and Carl Maragi. Trumpets, Max Darsh, John Lake, 
Benny Benack III, Gabe Med, Trombones, Rob Edwards, Jeffrey Miller, Javier Nero, who's got his own uh, new release that came out. Uh, it's just fabulous uh, Latin jazz recording. I hope we can get to it. And I should say, Benny Benack's new recording just came out this week too, called Third Time's a Charm. So both those guys mm -hmm. have their own records out uh, newly this month. Yeah. And also the final trombone, Jennifer Wharton, Recording engineer Roy Hendrickson, mixing by Brian Montgomery, and mastering engineer David Darlington. Benny Benack, we should mention, was also on, uh, they did a Christmas the album Christmas together album too, too right? Stephen Fifeke and Benny right. Benack, which that was is a lot really of good. fun. Yeah, it had the Dreidel song on it. <laughs> yeah, the Dreidel song too. <laughs> now, uh, as Mike mentioned, uh, Fifeke's arrangements are really complex, and right. uh, there's too many things going on to describe them all. You can yeah. just uh, go on and on. So I'll just give you my impressions and highlights of each tune as I was going on, kind of play by play. I should say, though, that more than half of these tunes, the studio recordings are available on YouTube with you know, the video. So if you want to see what's actually going on in the interaction with all the musicians, it's really, you can watch those uh, on there, too. And maybe give you some insight, you know, into uh, what instruments are being played and uh, what's going on at the time. Anyway, we're going to start out with The Promised Land. And uh, the drums beat in this intense, even beat tune. The trumpets scream right away. Uh, Wince's guitar has prominent lines, and I hear bass clarinet in the reeds as well. Muted trumpets and woodwind lines intersect with more open brass lines. And before two minutes, a repeated undulating figure in the piano gets built upon uh, with the band sections. There's an interesting section of flute and guitar lines before repeated pulsing rhythmic lines build the tension to around three minutes and 13 seconds. And a cool rising piano line from Fifeke hangs and he gets a solo over a throbbing bass and cymbal groove till the band builds up again. Pulsing rhythmic figures return uh, with drum, big drum buildups from Brian Carter, who gets some solo spots in exchange with the horn lines. It builds back up with layers of horn lines and a cool lower syncopated line of trombone and berry sax. Fifeke gets some more rhythmic piano near the end to interact with horns and screaming trumpets. The pulsing lines come again, getting Wince's guitar involved too, to a big finish. Now we're gonna get an old standard Jimmy Van Hughes and Johnny Burke tune, It Could Happen to You. And the drums started out with a clicky modern kind of R&B beat twist uh, with some bouncy piano and guitar riffs and muted trumpets to make an intro, bringing in Benny Benack's vocals. He has smooth, relaxed vocal lines that contrast over the jumpy beats and horn figures uh, below. And then the feel switches up to swing with a big arranged horn transition into a piano solo from Fifeke. It's swinging and happy sounding in his lines. And when Benak returns with more vocals, he's got a real bounce in his phrasing and the sax section is working right in sync with his lines. It's a lot of fun and he gets some great swooping lines uh, in his vocalizations as well. The R&B groove returns for the final section and gets progressively funkier with some cool trombone rhythmic licks and guitar. Benak ends it with a big bluesy high note ending. Track three is a Benny Golson tune, Stable Mates, and this has got powerful horn arrangements on here with lots of dynamic 
rhythmic change-ups between swing and latiny feels. Chad Lefkowitz-Brown gets an energetic tenor solo going, and there are rock'em, sock'em horn hits behind this boop-bop, 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 you know, kind of slappy in one way and the other that are cool. Uh, things settle into a steady swing for the rest of the solo over chugging bass. The horns build up behind. Fifeke has a driving piano solo midway through the tune, quoting a little Charlie Parker on the way. And the horns build back up with more boop-bop, boop-bop lines. Brian Carter gets a drum break into a final buildup of the horn sections through the melody and some final switch-ups of the rhythm feel. And then Chad Lefkowitz-Brown getting some final blowing in at the end. Great, exciting arrangement. There's something also about the uh, the brass where he'll he'll kind of change somehow the arrangement or they'll start playing in parallel or something and he'll get this like sort of 1920s sort of mass sweet sound out of them and then that'll change in the next section. It's pretty interesting. He does have a lot of, you know, even though yeah. his compositions and arrangements are very forward-reaching, he does yeah. have a lot of little retro elements yeah. in Yeah, and in they'll come kind of and then you'll be like, oh, this sounds like kind of like old yeah. school stuff, and then it'll just disappear. It's pretty yeah. amazing. So he'll go through different periods of jazz as well when he thinks about his arranging. Harmonically, he'll have like little, in some of these tunes, you can you can hear, they'll go through little transitions where the 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 harmony will change to some sort of modal idea just briefly and move through a little kind right. of segue. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah. Through blink all, it, all blink of and you'll miss it. Yep. <laughs> all right. Trek four, Ali Delangelo. This is like Wings of the Angels or something in Italian. Is that what that means? Ali Delangelo. Yeah, that's what it means. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was someone's name. <laughs> oh, hey, Ali. Yeah. Didn't yeah. you go to school with her down in Ali, uh, yeah. Staten Island? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It starts out with a bass and piano, left-hand rhythmic figure that gives it a feeling of skipping along. Saxes, muted trumpets, and trombones layer in. That bounce is carried on as lines are passed around more in piano and then in deep bass trombone lines. It gets more of a driving swing feel with building horn lines and then softens again into an alto sax solo from Alexa Tarantino. She has good swing feel and hesitated rhythmic figures between speedier double-time licks, finishing up with some intervals of harmonic exploration. Feifke follows with a piano solo punctuated with horn jabs and a couple sets of descending figure ideas and triplets into percussive ideas to make a new forceful groove that bass and drums lock into. The horns build it up again with more lines from Tarantino and Feifke. It comes down quietly with some flute, trombone, and muted trumpets for a slowed down ending to match the beginning with a final phrase from Tarantino. Nice transformations through the course of this tune. We're going to get the Title track, Stephen Feifke's original Catalyst. The drums beat this one in, and there's a cool low line with unison bass, bass clarinet, and guitar. Andrew Gould gets some leading lines on a sweet-sounding alto sax, as does John Lake on trumpet, in between full horn lines with a mix of muted trumpets. Lake gets more improvisation with a big warm trumpet tone. Woodwinds with clarinets and flute have new lines for backing. And Gould gets a fluttery, free-flying extended solo next over a funky drum beat from Carter. They pause it before Carter starts a new groove, and things build up with some stacked dissonances in piano and horns. The feel with that lower line idea from earlier returns with a big full band arrangement around lines from Gould and Lake as they get some simultaneous improvisation with a few pauses, but continued intensity to the end. Now, talk about retro vibes. We'll go way back. Uh, oh, yeah. Tune, Johnny Green, Edward Hyman, I Cover the Waterfront. 
a great lush arrangement on this one to start it out. Flute, clarinet, bass, clarinet, flugelhorns, but it builds tension working to a sudden hit and pause before Martina da Silva starts her vocals. Her phrasing is good, nice little embellishments. It's rubato and conducted by Feifke, getting into a relaxed, steady tempo from the I Cover the Waterfront lyric. Uh, there's some delicious scooping soft trombone lines mixed in with the other horn backing lines, and it builds to a great climax and a pause. De Silva gets some raspy tension in her voice in spots as well. The arrangement really highlights her voice and phrasing, the band serving her, but then the band gets a chance to shine after the vocals finish with a great building arrangement and a final lush swell to the end. All right, another old jazz standard, Victor Young and Ned Washington's My Foolish Heart. Uh, but for this one, we're going to get a bossa nova treatment with some light and tasty opening piano from Pfeifke. A uh, great woodwind arrangement to bring in the vocals from De Silva with fluttering flutes and bass clarinet. But she's trading off the vocals here with drummer Brian Carter now, uh, <laughs> who turns out to be quite a vocalist. The drums handled here by Jimmy McBride. Uh, Carter has a soulful and surprisingly high register voice. Uh, the arrangement gets a modulating lift into a silky alto solo from Alexa Tarantino over rhythmic chords from Feifke and lush woodwind lines. And the vocalists are back for more exchanges, male and female in the same register. And they work up to some nice harmonized lines and final exchanges with the last soft ending. Track eight, I believe this is a tune by Oscar Pettiford, Tricketism. Carter's drum brushes. Here, bring in the horns on this to get things swinging into some improvised piano from Feifke. Woodwinds and brass have some rhythmic line exchanges to open things up for Dan Chmielinski's bass to get some solo time, and then a cool unison section of bass, guitar, and piano. The full band has some swinging lines with fills from Carter and more piano from Feifke. A huge trumpet scream brings in a trombone solo from Jeffrey Miller, played with a lot of gusto. And then Chmielinski is back for more bass soloing as the volume comes down. Very nice soft sax and trombone backing lines build up to trumpets shouting out. And Alex Wintz gets some guitar exchanges with Feifke as the horns give great swinging backing. And we hear some more of that bass, guitar, and piano line as the horn arrangement carries on. And some final bass from Chmielinski to end it up. Track 9, Feifke's original Patience Promise. Or Patience's promise maybe hmm. a lightly swinging waltz tune started out by the rhythm section and tasty piano fills the horns come in softly under the solo line taken by benny bennock's trumpet the horns build up nicely to bring feifke back for some soling with rapid lines triplet ideas and high ringing notes and playful trills too bennock returns for an improvised solo with lyrical phrasing and some speedy double time licks the horn arrangement builds up more and more with sassy sax section lines set against the brass. It comes down with muted trumpets and soft figures over ringing bass before Benek gets a final modal line to finish it up. And the final tune, Stephen Feifke's original Kingpin. It's an even beat tune with nicely layered horn lines over a clicky beat from Brian Carter. The syncopation and phrases give it an unclear feel of meter, but Carter settles the groove in with a clear click on beat three that begins with a searing solo on uh, alto sax from Andrew Gould. The arrangement gets more sparse for him to continue on with waves of notes. There's some cool repeated ringing piano and trumpet backing parts. Then a little transition section with mysterious modal lines into a tenor sax solo from Lucas Pino. 
cutter has worked up the drums to a heavier beat now, and the longer phrased horn lines lock in as Pino works it up and then joins in with the horn arrangement. Things quiet down for a full band arrangement to build up again into a softer vamp section worked by Wince's guitar and Feifke's piano that sets things up for Carter to work up a drum solo, and he takes his time to build this one up. And then from that, Wince emerges with a guitar solo of his own with rapid picking and some very cool, tasty double-stop ideas as Carter continues on with the drum intensity. The band joins in on that vamping then, backing the guitar solo and builds it up to a sudden, quiet and soft section that then slows to the end. So it's all here, great arrangements, making use of all the timbres of the instruments, flutes, clarinets, flugelhorns add lush variety, Feifke's piano and Wince's guitar have prominent parts in all of the arranging as well. The interplay of the horn lines and skillfulness of the writing and arranging stands out. The tunes have variety with the common point of driving energy. The solos are well shared throughout the ensemble and exciting. You got Gould and uh, Tarantino on alto sax, Pino's tenor sax, Benach and Lake on trumpet, guitar bass solos, and of course, Feifke's always skillful and creative piano work. And we get some vocal variety too, from Benach's playfulness to Silva's nostalgic and tasty treatment, and Carter's high and soulful voice. A nice mix of Feifke's original compositions and different takes on standard tunes, and like that bossa feel added to my foolish heart. So Stephen, please keep these big band <laughs> recordings coming. They're a lot of fun and uh, give you lots of things to discover on every listen. Yeah, I've liked everything I've heard from Stephen Feifke so far. And uh, I think Kinetic was my favorite album until now. It's probably this one. I really, oh. this really kind of caught my attention a lot. Um, what really caught my attention on this album, as I said, were the arrangements, which sometimes incorporate various styles as well as various eras of jazz in the same yeah. tune. Right. Uh, pretty amazing. He's a very, Feifke's a very inventive as an arranger. And there's often a lot of humor in his arrangements too, which I always love to hear. There's a right. lot of those like, those sort of brass like, wow, you know, the kind of like just mm. screams and these, these kind of like, bam, kind of <laughs> like sounds. So I just really love that. What I like too is like, yeah. you know, you often get arrangements that will have the different sections, you know, doing different things and playing. But he'll often have like the brass divided with some of the trumpets doing something and some of them doing others. And yeah. there's a variety of mutes interacting at the same time. There's really yeah. all these different blends and lines of motion going on at once. So just a lot of love of like, you know, orchestral timbre and things. So when people yeah. really pay attention to that, it's great. Even in jazz, I just love it. I was kind of overwhelmed by all that I heard in this album. This is one of those albums where, you know, sometimes we'll do this in like classical music too, where um, you just can't absorb it in a week. <laughs> it's more right. time to do it, you know, so I, I couldn't really, uh, I, I'm going to have to hear this again. There's a lot of variety of approaches, not just in the arrangements, but the solos as well. Some are solos, some are taken as like duets or, you know, question, you know, question and response kind of sort of phrasing from the... Uh, hmm two different musicians the, the whole album just overflows with creative ideas one, one issue i'm having though is i haven't found a cd of this it looks like on his website he's got it as part of a bundle uh mm. for 27 dollars and 99 cents which is a lot especially if you live in japan it's like like that time's like you know 1.5 yeah. or something you know but uh, I just hope this is kind of come out as a regular CD. So yeah, I don't think we can get it yet put that out. on CD here. But um, yeah, I haven't we'll seen see it on Amazon though or anything. So no, it's kind of I like looked. Looking. It's not available yeah. yet. So yeah, 
I hope it's going to come out though, because he's also he had a the uh, role of the rhythm section last year, right, right? And that never came out on a CD either. I don't think. Mm. I would have liked to have had that one too. Yeah. But anyway, we do. I do have Kinetic on a CD, so that's cool. Yeah. You know. Yeah, if he keeps up this uh, this uh, rate of productivity. There'll be a lot more recordings to talk about in yeah. a short period of time. So I, I really like that um, he's doing these large ensembles. Um, seems to be leading a real renaissance in big band stuff. So that's great. Yeah, he's unique too because there are other you know big bands. We talk about um, we, we we think about like the different styles of big bands. They kind of made the two ends. Like you know, Wynton Marsalis would be like at the more traditional conservative end, and then mm -hmm. Maria Schneider would be kind of at the uh, right. really sort of not avant-garde but experimental like really reaching out kind of end and then there's a lot of other stuff too and yeah you know he's kind of he's really unique and on his own yeah anyway check it out it's uh the one word you can use to wrap it all up is very exciting so yeah it's an exciting record yeah i just love the whole the whole sound of it all yeah i just want i just want i want that coming through the big speakers like all yeah. over my body it's gonna be great <laughs> Well, they have it. There's episode 121. We're back, baby. Transmusical experience. Is that what we're going to call the episode? Transmusical? So. Yeah, just transmusical. So. Transmusical experience? Maybe just call it a transmusical experience. What do you think? Oh, we could do that. Yeah, that sounds good. A transmusical experience. Okay, mm. go with That's that. That's good. I'll write that, that down so I don't forget it. You heard it right here. Creativity right in front of you, people. <laughs> we just came up with the title. There you go. For the, uh, we were talking about it before the episode, and then we just couldn't think of something, and now we, there it is. Yeah, sometimes uh, <laughs> the program lends itself early to uh, a good title, yeah. and sometimes it doesn't. And, yeah, sometimes uh, it doesn't. And sometimes we just up. never come up with one, so we just say, yeah, let's, let's do <laughs> let's that one. This, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like doing a podcast is like baseball. You know, you, 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 play, you play poorly one day, you're going to play again tomorrow. So, right. you know, it's not like we're putting out an album, and it's going to have to last forever. <laughs> It's just like, you know, huh, next week we'll come up with a better one. And next week we have a theme already. We're, we're going to go uh, guitar again. We're going we guitar again. Guitar yeah. recordings, so, we've know. got guitar next week, and then I think we have a piano the week after. Right. Because there's that great, uh, well, we haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure it's great, Keith Jarrett recording. Oh, I heard it. Out I've already been listening to of it. Of yeah. a CPE Bach who we really love. I mean, how yep. could we not talk about that? Yeah, we got to talk about but, it. Yeah, Even it though it was recorded ago. a long time ago. 1994. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years ago. God, yeah. Almost almost 30 years ago. How was it? Was it good? I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I'm so. sure I will too. I, I haven't heard it yet. But yeah. okay. we'll, I'm going to get to it though. If you want to find out what those recordings are, shortly after this episode is released, I'll have that playlist up on Deezer. You can find it there. And there'll also be a link to it on our Facebook page. So if you want to start listening early, please do that. And uh, as always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Catches your eye, brings in new people wondering what that is. And uh, sometimes our titles will either do that or turn people away. We'll see what yeah. happens uh, right. every week with the titles. So any final thoughts there, Mike? No, not really. I'm just kind of looking at next week's. I've got some pretty interesting uh, classical guitar stuff. It's a little different than what I usually okay. come up with. And uh, some new composers you've never heard of. And I know you haven't because I haven't either. So. <laughs> I've got a bit of a mix-up. I've got a duo and then I think a quintet. And we're going to hear what might be the uh, last recording made by Joy DeFrancisco oh, yeah. on organ, too. With mm. uh, yeah, a 96-year-old guitarist. So, wow. Yeah, be inspirational. Yeah, looking forward to it. 
yeah, all that coming up next week, episode 122. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.